At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Here it comes again. Lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana-Harrington, joined by my north, my northeast, in lovely Tonawanda, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm in actually North Tonawanda, which is actually a separate municipality from the city of Tonawanda. But I'm, we, we, we have that with um, St. Paul, where I think there's like a West St. Paul, but not technically an East St. Paul. There is a town of Tonawanda, a city of Tonawanda, and a city of North Tonawanda. And I'm broadcasting to you live from a basement apartment in North Tonawanda right now. And you, I heard, were burning the midnight oil during uh, Black Friday. You got up early. You got all dressed up, and you headed into work. I did go to work on a Friday. Yes, I did. And that was your first day back at work in in, in several weeks, and like a week and a half, hmm. or something like that. Yeah, because you know those the day where everybody else is off is the best day to go to work. Because why is that? Can, because then you can go to work and. If you're really an overachiever, actually get work done, or if you know, if if by chance you only really have like 30 minutes of work in your entire work day, then you can at least, you know, not be bothered for the rest of the day. So did you just sit there and play on your phone all day? Maybe you, uh, maybe you downloaded the SeatGeek app. Maybe you I know. did. You know, the SeatGeek is one of the best ways to buy sports tickets, concert tickets, and it can be complicated, but there's a simpler, easier way to buy, and that's using the Seat 
Geek app. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. And with their seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. And you always find the best seats at the best prices and it's fully guaranteed. And there's nothing like seeing your favorite team or musician or wrestling personality in person. And SeatGeek will get you closer to that action for a great value. So if you're ever if you ever by yourself at work, I suggest you download the SeatGeek app. I suggest you check it out. And because you listen to WrestleNomics Radio, you can even use our very special promo code. It is W-E, almost like you're typing in WWE, but you, you drop the first W, and it's just W-E. And uh, that promo code will save you 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek experience, which means you can save $20. That's, that's like 25 Canadian mm-hmm. dollars. That's uh, like but, a W house show ticket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me see what it is in pounds today. Uh, $20 would be 15 pounds. You could say 15 pounds for those of you uh, uh, wrestling, WrestleNomics listeners coming to the U.S. Maybe you want to get some WrestleMania tickets. I checked it out. You can find them on SeatGeek and uh, get some good tickets for the New Orleans show, WrestleMania 34. I will be there. Uh, have you made a decision whether you're going or not? I have a ticket. I have a flight to New Orleans, but I haven't made any plans beyond that. <laughs> I think between us, we, we've made complete plans for one person, but neither of us has both a flight, a hotel, and ticket all all booked. Yes. But that's all right. It will work out. I mean, there's Greyhound buses if I really need it. Yeah. And and this year, there's going to be less opportunities to go to WWE shows because uh, they're going to cut back to 14 pay-per-views, down from the 16 that they did. There'll be fewer uh, opportunities to go to pay-per-views, but there'll be yeah. more opportunities than ever to go to live events. That's true. That's true. They're already probably going to break the record for the most live events that they've done in the last 20 years um, this year. Uh, it's never going to reach the records they had in the 80s when they were literally doing like a thousand shows in a year uh, with with several tours going on at once. But that's also because they would do mega taping marathons and then have to go live. Did know, I say then ever? I don't know if you said ever. It will be it will be the highest probably live revenue. It will be some of the highest live revenue they've ever done. But um, – my affinity yeah, they, for hyperbole has gotten me once again. Well, but I mean, there's also those NXT specials. You're very right to point out that there's all those as well. So even though it's 14 shows, it's also four or six NXT big specials probably next year coming. Yep. So um, – and it looks like they're elevating Money in the Bank to be kind of the next big uh, multi-brand brand. show. Yep. And that will be in uh, – this year will be in June 17th in Chicago, Money in the Bank. Um, I think that's a smart choice on their part. If yeah. if I were to think of like the most um, creative things that they've done in the last few years, uh, last you know decade or so, the money in the bank is a great example of a gimmick that they put together and has been successful as branding for themselves. And we've seen other companies steal it and use it, and it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like the Royal Rumble, where I think people really like the idea of the title shot comes down the line as a part of this match and you know what the gimmick of the match is going to be and it makes a lot more sense than even hell in the cell or tlc in a lot of ways for winning those matches yeah like these i I guess the the pay-per-views that WWE has done over the years most of them were sort of gimmick pay-per-views right like survivor series was the first one after wrestlemania and they did royal rumble so you got your elimination match pay-per-view and you got your battle royal pay-per-view and then even like king of summerslam isn't an example of that, right? It's just a bunch of matches, but but then the King of the Ring is, is an example of that as well, right? It was the tournament pay-per-view because I think the idea for them was they didn't want to give away 
too many of the big matches that they were going to run on house shows because probably the idea was, well, if I bought this match on pay-per-view, I saw this match on pay-per-view, why am I going to want to go see it on the live event? So they had to do some sort of unique, different, special show. Um, but do you know why Vince didn't like King of the Ring? Because he couldn't promote a match. Yeah, he he doesn't like the uncertainty associated with it. And so you weren't quite sure who you would be seeing going all the way through. Because yeah, the biggest and, match would be the, the tournament final, but you don't have a clue what the tournament final is. Yeah, yeah. And so it just sounded like he kind of soured on those tournament ideas a lot as a one-show uh, endeavor at least. Um, was according to at least writers what they've said about why why King of the Ring never has been re-elevated the way some others are. And we've, of course, seen other – there was that scramble match they did the one time um, that you know they kind of went away from. And they've had some other gimmick ideas in the past that they've tried and then kind of walked walked away from. So King of the Ring by the means is not the only orphan out there. But I guess the point is Money in the Bank is, is another gimmick pay-per-view, and I think it is a brand that they've made pretty strong, and they do make it so that almost every Money in the Bank winner ends up winning the title. So when you see somebody win the Money in the Bank, you have a pretty good idea that this person is going to be a champion someday. Although I think in the big picture, the Money in the Bank gimmick is does more harm than good because I think it undermines the value of the title. But uh, I don't know if it does more harm than good. I guess you could say the application it of prevents it prevents more good harm. than it allows to to good to flourish. I mean, for me, it's always been more frustrating that like between Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, you would throw in, in this case, there's an elimination chamber in Vegas and a fast lane in, in Columbus, Ohio, and one of them's a Raw and one of them's a SmackDown event. But a lot of times you'd end up almost – sacrificing kind of that person who won the rumble and then they'd already have to kind of defend it or change it before they get to the actual event. And that always kind of used to annoy me that you would have to shove that pay-per-view in between. At least now you have a little bit more of a natural thing going on where you can say, well, if the winner's from this brand, then at least the other person's pay-per-view can be to decide who gets to go for the big event at WrestleMania. (laughs) But, um, yeah, uh, does I guess one of the I points see... I wanted to make was that Money in the Bank, I feel, has become maybe even a stronger brand than Survivor Series, right? Because yes. people care about that briefcase a lot more than they care about whatever the elimination matches or even even when it's Raw versus SmackDown for brand supremacy. You know, the Money in the Bank, the briefcase is a bigger deal in wrestling fan culture. And we're talking culture here, but let's talk economics. So they're going from 16 pay-per-views down to 14. Um, I think this is a little bit of a rebucation uh, a rebuke of the mentality that the brand split would somehow grow the overall fan base to a discernible amount for the WWE network and what we're really seeing is it just costs them a lot more to run two live events and especially in a time when when some of these live events are struggling even in tv tapings to get big houses or even pay-per-views to get big houses um, it's not always such a guaranteed money maker for them to to have to kind of pull it together and try to fight for the interest battle for everyone's eyeballs every twice a month now, and so I'm not surprised to see them kind of scaling back a little bit. They've they've flirted with 16 in the past. When you go back to I think it was 2006, if you look at the full year of 2006, they might have been able to hit it that year. Um, but it's been a long time since, you know, they kind of weaned down from that on purpose because there really is kind of more of a natural cycle to say people like to see 
around 12 events a year. And then if you want to throw in one or two extra there, you know, you can, you can squeeze out two in May, one in May 6th for backlash, one in May 27th for payback. And then you can squeeze two in September, one for extreme rules on September 16th and one for hell in the cell on September 30th. But, um, it, it feels much more natural for the builds if there's three to four weeks in between each of the events for sure. And I would think this is a decision that's influenced by whatever data they have in their analytics department about how the network is performing around these pay-per-views. This is information that we don't have access to. Uh, I would think that that's informing them that, well, maybe 16 isn't really worth it, but maybe 14 is still worth it. Yeah, yeah. And and I think at the same time, you know, it's just about splitting it all up where we, we know that we want to do at least one a month and then we know that we want to give certain ones to each brand. And so it worked out this time that there's going to be um, five, I think, Raw shows and four SmackDown shows. But um, it, it will be interesting to see how it all works in, in terms of whether that feels like the right amount. I remember when SmackDown was kind of launched as its own brand here the second time around and they did all those things. They they kind of inferred that they thought they were going to get a big bump in subscriptions and that hasn't been true really in the slightest. Uh, we have seen some variability in the pay-per-view buys as small as those numbers are. Year over year, there was pay-per-view buys were up this year for some of those big you know Brock Lesnar matches. So there is some argument to be said that, yes, on a pay-per-view business, by having a brand split, having more pay-per-views, you could actually make a difference. But on a subscription basis, it just – you know, that's like saying we're going to add, you know, extra episodes of uh, the Trailer Park Boys or something to your Netflix subscription. It doesn't mean that twice as many people show up and are, are going to start subscribing just because that's happening. And, and the pay-per-view buy numbers you're referring to, is this something from the most recent quarterly report, right? Yeah, that was something that was kind and, of in the 10Q and they even called out mentioning that they were up on, on, a, on a large percentage of buys. And they it was didn't the same tell number us, of pay-per-views. Yeah, but they didn't tell us which pay-per-views sold how many buys, right? They just said... Here's the buys for the quarter. It's up versus the same quarter last year. Yeah, it was up significantly, like 25%. So we don't but know yes. which, which pay-per-view was like, which, which pay-per-view performed the strongest, which is something they would have told us back in the pay-per-view only era. Yeah, I mean, I think we can infer that it was probably the SummerSlam and some of the other really big tentpole matches but that I mean, they were doing they at did, the time. They did SummerSlam and they did uh, Great Balls the, of Fire in that, in that uh, quarter with Joe and Lesnar, and the, and the Reigns and Cena match was in that quarter as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so I mean it just – it stands to reason it was the Raw brand matches that were probably generating that extra interest. And um, Lesnar and Strowman we should mention there too. Yeah, so I, I just think that it stands to reason that. But you're right. We, we don't know officially that it wasn't SmackDown exploding it, though I kind of feel like if SmackDown was exploding it – You'd see some other hints of it in some other line of of information, television ratings or crowd reactions, um, crowd reaction, merchandise sales, live event sales. The fact of which brand gets five pay-per-views next year instead of the other one. You know, there'd be a lot of little pieces of it. And uh, I I think anyone would be a fool to think that WWE isn't going to continue to use Raw as their main brand for the next year. To the point even that if someone gets super over on SmackDown, don't be surprised to see them move over to Raw because we're going into a television renegotiation fees rights, rights fees um, period here where they really need to keep Raw as strong as possible. 
Um, I think they've improved SmackDown as much as they can. But at this point, they're they're lapping year over year numbers and it's harder to, you know, kind of always make it look like it's going up. And so Raw's going to be the brand that they're going to really need to sell because that's the that's the institution. Right. So SmackDown's bounced around from night to night to night over the time. And depending on who wants to pay for it, I could see them moving SmackDown again. But Raw, I think they're going to firmly want to keep starting on Monday nights at 9 p.m., 8 p.m., whatever it's going to be. And probably for a three-hour show. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. There's been some talk about other ideas. You know, there was even um, a rumor that was going out there about uh, WWE possibly negotiating with Facebook about a, a Facebook show of some sort. Do you know anything about that? Right, so Ryan Satin of Pro Wrestling Sheet reported that WWE is in talks to produce a weekly Facebook show that mo- could start in January and could go live Right after SmackDown, of course, that would mean that it would take the place of 205 Live, which currently airs live after SmackDown on the W Network. And uh, there's Ryan Satin says there's some some talks about what the creative direction is going to be for such a Facebook show, and it could be Raw versus SmackDown battling for brand supremacy, or it could be mixed tag matches with you know a, a male and a female partner against another male and a female partner. And in fact, WWE trademarked the term mixed match challenge recently, which to me. It's funny that people think of that as intergender matches when I think of that as almost like martial arts, you know, <laughs> we're going to do uh, we're going to do cruiserweight versus heavyweight style. You sounds know, like an Antonio, Antonio Noki match. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so mixed, mixed, mixed tag matches, by the way, are, are different from intergender matches. Because that's true. In, in the mixed tag match, when when, say, the male partner tags and the female partner, the female partner on the other side of the ring must also enter. So there is never any uh man on woman or woman on woman or man on woman or woman on man violence and then at least once in the old days didn't they have it with like torito and maybe hornswoggle or someone else so that they they also had like a minis component to it as well i don't know that sounds plausible though plausible doesn't it yeah um we've seen wwe getting closer with facebook in the last uh year year and a half here of course uh triple h has been doing a lot of these you know talk back sessions on facebook live after some of these shows and um we've seen we've seen a little bit of this right even some nxt footage where they you know they they would like promote the school and say here's the people training and then they would show kind of like a periscope uh facebook live type video they've done that for the, the big tryouts too yeah. So, I mean, we've seen them getting closer and obviously this is an example of them kind of taking those eyeballs that they were able to agglomerate in that process and then looking like they might want to apply it. Uh, I don't know if there's an appetite for a weekly wrestling show. I do think there's a larger appetite for a weekly wrestling show on Facebook than there is for 205 Live, but that's just me. I guess the idea with the Facebook Live show is that you, you can project this to the masses to the to because, my God, half the world's on Facebook and uh, W Network, not so much. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's all these special ad buys coming from an, an undisclosed Eastern European country that are, are willing to make sure that Rusev wins more often, things like that. That could be helpful. Yeah. If, you, if we're going to, you know, do a conspiracy to help somebody, Rusev would be the one to help. <laughs> He'd be the one to help. He is, he is the, one of the most underutilized wrestlers, uh, I don't know, in many years. We're talking about TV deals here, and the big one, uh, kind of the big news that was both uh, headline news for the Wrestling Observer, but if you went a couple days back, what it really came from was the Sports Business Daily 
um, which was an article behind a paywall and then awful announcing. I know did a, a good recap of the article and then Dave kind of wrote his piece on it. So we've seen lots of variations of the same information being kind of filtered through different people. But it was basically all about the UFC TV deal. And what it is that they signed originally, where is it going, and what might they what might change? And the first part is it was a seven year deal with Fox, and it ends next year. It was worth an average, they said, of 120 million a year, but it had an escalation in it, so that by the final year it'd be worth 160 million. That is, of course, um, a decent amount of money, but not a ton of money, even by WWE standards, right? Uh, what, what do you think WWE's deal is worth today? Can you remember that number? 150 I think it says down here for the US you mean the US deal yeah that's just the US alone deal and it says then w will make 100 around 180 million from its NBC deal in 2017 yeah that's just from and, its US deal I think like last yeah, and, last year they made 231 million dollars off of TV rights worldwide and then what would be a little bit um confusing is when they say the NBCU deal whether or not that includes something like total bellas or total divas because technically that's a little different than the Ross Smackdown rights. Yeah. They're obviously part of the TV rights money that WWE generates, but they're not part of the TV rights deal that they signed because they signed those deals kind of on a different cycle. So this 180 um, million might refer to only Raw and SmackDown. I think it actually probably includes the the total divas mm-hmm. a bit in there, but I just mean it what they would actually be renegotiating for for the Raw and SmackDown rights would be a little bit less on the basis. But yeah, it's it's all very close to each other. But um, 120, 160, so very close, kind of those comparable deals. Of course, when UFC signed this deal, they were pretty thrilled with it back seven years ago. Now I think they would consider it way under what they think they're worth. And on top of this, they're still generating hundreds of millions of dollars in pay-per-view revenue every year, uh, unlike WWE. Um, And so the UFC, however, was not able to come to a deal with Fox. Uh, They had an exclusive negotiating window it lapsed last month um fox never even gave them quote a formal bid which is a sign that basically you're really far apart on numbers of each other you don't want to get into a situation where you're almost insulting them with what you're willing to offer um and they said basically that ufc wants you know uh 400 plus million 450 something like that yeah dave in his observer uh article made it seem more like USC is probably really looking for something in the 200 to 300 million range. They'd be out of They'd be over the moon at 400 plus. They would be very happy with 300 plus and they would only settle for 200 plus. So they're highballing here with 450. Yes. That, that essentially the, the knowledge of, Hey, we sold your television. We sold your company on the idea that you're going to get this huge multiplier on rights that was maybe valued at 400 plus million. But realistically, they understand that probably the marketplace where it sits today, the 200 million is much closer to what people are going to throw out there. And they said even Fox might offer something around 200 million. Um, to UFC. And so it will be very interesting because, of course, there's other companies in the mix. There's CBS, there's ESPN, there's NBC Sports, there's Turner Sports. And so UFC, you know, shows them all the numbers, all the stuff, tries to sell them on the idea that they're exploding right now. It's intriguing to imagine how the cards are going to fall because UFC is going to sign and finish their deal probably before WWE is going to sign and finish their deal, which means it seems unlikely to me at least that it would be the same uh, vendor going for both of them. Would you agree? Yeah, I don't I don't think we're going to see WWE and UFC on the same network. I guess that was the case uh, 
in the Spike era, right? And like those, yeah, but at five. that time, of course, but, UFC was was tiny. Exactly. At, at that time, UFC hadn't become a mainstream sport yet. And in fact, that's the springboard with which they became a mainstream sport. Was that uh, the Ultimate Fighter stuff that uh, de- debuted right after Raw? Um, but no, UFC is a is a big real sport now and uh it, yeah i don't think you're gonna see both of them on the same network because it probably wouldn't be worth it to the tv partner to have both of those live uh sporting or pseudo sporting events on their on their network right it would be what, maybe it would be redundant this, in some regard there's this weird comment in the sports business daily article and it says Quote, complicating matters is the fact that WWE's rights are up in the fall of 2019. WWE's scripted programming and audience makeup is much different than the UFC's. But a channel like FS1 could look at the WWE as an acceptable replacement programming in case it loses UFC rights. And so this goes back to the heart of This is really surprising because I, I didn't know that WWE's programming was scripted. Did you? <laughs> but it goes back to this very heart of a debate about whether or not UFC and WWE share the same base of people whether they did and it diverged, and whether today they share the same base of people. Because I I do think that there's some argument to be made that a lot of the fans that maybe were kind of co-branded 2006 through 2011, they have really gone in two different directions and that they're not overlapping. You know, a lot of these UFC people are not going to know the WWE stars, and a lot of the WWE stars are not going to know the UFC stars outside of maybe a Conor McGregor and outside of a Brock Lesnar. Yeah. Um, so there is, I think, a lot of, of divergence there. But I would disagree that the makeup is completely different. You know, they're both attracting older male audiences. And if anything, it depends on what year's demographics you're looking at for UFC because UFC has seen a dramatic age increase over the last um, decade here as they, they have not necessarily captured a larger audience as much as their audience has continued to age with them. Um, so these demographic groups, so the, the makeup of the audiences for WWE – and for UFC are pretty similar. Maybe they don't have the same fans, but there's there's similarities in the audience makeups, right? I believe there are. I think there's differences maybe in household income, uh, which is one thing they've looked at. I, there's certainly differences in advertiser willingness to you know advertise. That was going to be my next question. So if, if these audiences are actually quite similar, how come the impression that I'm under, why, why is it that UFC is so better able to sell advertising than WWE is? Well, I think Fox has been better able at at convincing people that they want that they're getting a live sports Is that you know investment. <laughs> um, I think you know you could say there's some about the credibility of the product. Yeah, I think for sure it's easier to sell a a mixed martial arts that is being established as legitimate competition versus professional wrestling entertainment. But How I always go factor. Do you think it is is that WWE's routinely insults the intelligence of its fans at least in my opinion and you know they do things like toilet humor and the the storylines don't seem to have a lot of continuity or even a a good moral center how much does that matter less than it probably i think it matters less than you probably do I, I think we would be on different ends of the spectrum there in terms of whether that's actually the thing that's holding back there the, the impediment to them getting good ad rates because so much of their ad rates are driven by can Uf- U- USA Network sell their slate of programming to advertisers ahead of time and bundle them together on all their different demographics and, and diversity initiatives to kind of sell that those advertisers across all their channels and their platforms. And 
I don't know if Fox is necessarily better at it than them. I think uh, UFC has been much, you know, UFC was much more successful early on about getting, you know, big beer sponsors, big car sponsors, you know, the big ticket stuff uh, than, than WWE as WWE has been exploding in the last couple of years. And they've talked a lot about their successes of doing that. Um, and so I, I think more and more this is a corporate initiative and it's less and less about the actual creative environment behind the scenes. But I think it's to them, it's the same as selling advertising on the Jersey Shore shows or whatever else is out there, you know, Alabama or Florida, Bama or whatever they call it now. Um, reality shows where, you know, you're just selling towards whatever demographic you're getting, though I'm sure that's a much younger demographic than the ones that are watching wrestling today. I, I just think it's really interesting that kind of counterplay of would Fox go for WWE heavy if they lost UFC because it might not be that extreme for them to have to pay that much more and it might really help them fill some big holes in their schedule but the flip of it would be a lot of sports stations consider it anathema for them to swallow the pill of of wwe professional wrestling um wholeheartedly and you know putting wrestling in between other other um live sporting events whether that would drive them up a wall or not right like do do the executives or do even the viewers want to see fake pro wrestling alongside legitimate sports well and the other problem was the spike effect which was in some ways what what they viacom discovered is that wrestling fans were really good at tuning in for stuff but they weren't necessarily interested in carrying over to other programming and ufc i mean usa has experienced this as well which is it was tough for them to counter promote shows sometimes because the the fans that like shooter are not necessarily the fans that like wrestling and the fans that like damnation are not necessarily the same people that like wrestling. And last show we talked a little bit about how edge talked about how they juiced a couple smackdowns just to make USA happy. So, you know, it's not to say that there's not a synergy there, but I think there's been a concern sometimes that like some of these sports stations would have a lot more issues with that synergy going well. Where, you know, if you think about how dismissive a lot of um, sporting sportcasters were of UFC, where they would, you know, kind of roll their eyes if they had to do a promo for UFC during a football game or something, it would be all the worse. What do you, what do you, you think so? You think it'd be even worse if it was a sporting event that had the lead in Seven years ago, for sure. Seven years ago, you would see a lot of that, where they would kind of talk out of the side of their mouth when they had to promote sometimes MMA things. They kind of thought of it as ridiculous. WWE as did. Ex- well, no, no, just like ridiculous. A, like sp- live sporting uh, things that would also be on Fox or other things. I got the impression, at least sometimes, I would hear who, them talk. But who about thought it. it was ridiculous? Usually, the older sportscasters that you know came from that generation of saying, you know, boxing is real and MMA is crap. Okay. So I, I just think it's that that kind of that that counterplay there, where you know now that U- UFC is covered on ESPN, that was a huge coup for them. That when ES ESPN didn't yeah. used to cover, you know, UFC live results, and now they do. And so we've seen a fundamental sea change in the appreciation, the understanding, and the acceptance of mixed martial arts as an American, you know, sporting event. Like people don't describe it as a blood sport or human cockfighting anymore. Right. And it's hard to believe in our lifetime that's changed. Whereas wrestling, I think it's all things to all people, you know. It's people still associate WWE with professional wrestling, but what what gay what um what version of professional wrestling they associate it with? It's not always clear, and I think you're right on that point, which is 
the insulting the audience, whether or not they change, I think enough people have been insulted by professional wrestling in their lifetime that they yeah. still associate it with that, regardless of whether it's a good product or a bad product. Yeah. And not by anything that's intrinsic to pro wrestling. It's not, it's not like a requirement to insult your audience or to have contempt for your audience or, or whatever is going on with Vince McMahon. But every, almost every major company has insulted their audience at one time or another. I mean, every major wrestling company. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, anything from, you know, WCW writing billions of books on it to, you know, New Japan shooter mania to the death of all Japan to, you know, uh, Giant Baba never insulted my intelligence. Unless he was wrestling himself, perhaps in his later years (laughs) doing the Baba chops. Um, But I I think I don't know if this relates to anything you're saying, but I think sports programming, you know, like the Chris Lee knows best slot. Chris Lee knows best, or whatever programs on after Raw or SmackDown. I feel like it may, if the reputation is that WWE isn't good lead-in programming for shows like that, maybe the the answer to that or the solution is what what it's good at lead-in programming for is things that are like sports. And we and maybe we saw that with the Ultimate Fighter. Maybe that's a factor in why that was a good program to pick up a lead-in from wrestling. I think it certainly was a great demographic fit. You know, young men watching. Yeah. So I guess the consequence of what I'm saying is that if WWE went to a sports network, uh, maybe the the programs that were placed after Raw would do better than the programs that are placed after Raw or SmackDown on the USA network because the programs on the sporting network are going to be sports programs that more people are going to convert to. I agree wholeheartedly. I think USA is attracting one demographic for 80% of their week and then a totally different demographic for 20% of their week. And it's it's a real challenge sometimes to understand what it is that they think their vision of a network is. And that's why they've struggled so much to remain number one and rebuild themselves after they've lost Monk and Psych and all these other big shows that they had that helped them kind of define who they were. And if Bonnie Hammer and Vince McMahon weren't so close, I don't think we'd see wrestling as such a strong crutch for them. Yeah. But uh, wrestling, you know, wrestling can, on, on the whole could be entirely different if Bonnie Hammer but and I mean, McMahon weren't friends. They make so much money on it in the sense that I still think it's profitable because they can underpay for wrestling content based on the eyeballs that you're buying for it. Um, you know, UFC, if you look at the number of people watching them, and I'm not talking about on a live Fox special, but I'm talking about on the FS1 stuff, you know, wrestling does far better in a lot of cases. So I, I think from an eyeball standpoint, it would be attractive. I think you're ultimately going to get down to the price point, which is, you know, UFC, WWE, they throw out lots and lots of different numbers. And WWE at least has got his hand slapped hard enough from the last lawsuit to know we can't overpromise. And underdeliver, excuse me. And so that's going to be a huge problem here is that UFC wants to hit $450 million annually in non-pay-per-view media rights revenue. That's a just from the U.S. Just from the U.S. deal, not even from any other international deals that they have. In, in, in theory, they want to hit that period. So that would include international deals. Oh, okay. But I don't think UFC has great international deals. Yeah, they don't have it to the level of WWE does, do they? Um, I think there are some countries of the world where they, you know, like Brazil and things like that, where they've gotten in pretty deep. Yeah. But uh, I think it's in the UK, UK and in Australia and Canada and Brazil, you know, they're they're in media markets doing things. I just don't think they have, you know, killer, killer deals. Um, 
so that's an enormous hike that they're getting right now, 120 million average going up to 450. You know, you're talking a huge multiplier, but that's why they try to get themselves valued that high. And one thing we know about WME IMG is that they are television rights negotiators. Hell, Ari Emanuel is the negotiator for WWE in these television renegotiation rights, which tells you a couple things. Because one thing about that is that last time around, it was Michelle Wilson and George Berrios that were the negotiator leads. And this year, now they they kind of outsource that. I think that says a lot. Yeah. Well, Ari Emanuel is Vince McMahon's agent too, isn't he? Yes, yes. Like they, there's always the joke that that WME represents Vince McMahon, mm-hmm. um, and he's been represented for you know 20 years here this way. So this is not something new. Uh, as much as sometimes we portray this as this fight between the two. At the same time, I don't see synergy. You know, people have asked before, are they going to do a, a, a dual deal where it's UFC and WWE together? No, they're not. There's a pretty strict firewall. There's different timings. There's different interests. There's different everything between those two deals right now. So um, if I'm WWE, I'm kind of rooting for UFC and Fox not to make a deal, aren't I? Because then that, that's good for me if I'm WWE, right? Because now I have, now I have this sports network here that needs programming needs live programming that gets good ratings if they lose ufc yeah but we also know what their floor is right we we basically hear from them that they were willing to spend 200 million and that's it and wwe needs to get a much better deal than 200 million to impress their shareholders well if you break that down by hour ufc is probably getting more per hour right um yeah yeah probably yeah for sure and and per person. So I'm just saying it's an even worse deal for WWE then, right? Because <laughs> basically they're turning down having to spend less. I mean, 200 million, and then they're. I'm just saying they they would. I think unless the they're willing biggest, to spend more for more hours, which W would provide. W would provide more hours than UFC, and so that yeah. would that would come out to uh, you know, in yeah, 250 or something. That but, would come out to more hours broadcast on their station that would have larger viewership. If you follow me there. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you there. I, I just think WWE wants UFC to get a good deal because then that proves that they are worth a lot in this marketplace and that sports the sports right bubble hasn't burst. Yeah. I they, think they WWE to get a good deal on the whole regardless of what network it's with. Yes, I, I agree they don't want them to get a good deal with certain players because that could close off the negotiations for them. I agree that they would love to have a better deal than UFC, and so they don't want to, you know, get into another situation where UFC is valued at four or five billion dollars and they're valued at two billion dollars and they look like the little shrimp. They don't care for those comparisons. So it's it's a really tight negotiation there where they're trying to differentiate themselves. And at the same time, you know, they abandoned the pay-per-view market and UFC didn't, and UFC is actually doing okay in the pay-per-view market. They're still generating a lot of money from it. Yeah. On the flip side, UFC put itself heavily, heavily in debt and has to pay off a lot of that debt. And they require the pay-per-view themselves. Pay-per-view is not dead. Did you hear that? Pay-per-view is not dead. Yes. Um, that's, Old I, technology I feel like that, still rules. It's not going I, away. I feel like this is is one of our um, WrestleNomics bingo card spaces is Mookie screaming about pay-per-view and Brandon screaming about how everyone holds to their old technology and, and the LaserDisc sh- Chateau uh, deserved to close down yesterday. No, but I think there is a, there's truth to that. New, new media, new technology doesn't necessarily eradicate or make completely obsolete the old media, but – it, it, it creates could, a complementary situation. It could marginalize sometimes. the usefulness of the old media. 
because yeah, I think yeah. there's still, you know, we still, I still get mail for whatever reason. I still get all this junk mail that I have to throw away every day. So people are still sending me stuff through this very old medium. It's well, still and, useful for them to do so in some cases. And UFC has added a tipping point here where they have to decide what they're going to do. You know, they met with companies like Amazon and Oath, which is owned by Verizon, uh, which is what AOL and Yahoo combined got called. And they've met with these digital companies to figure out is there something they can do with them more. At the same time, I, I do think that there's only a few digital players out there that can generate the revenue and the the exposure that means something for even a sport like MMA. I don't think people are flocking to it. You know, it, we're still seeing so much traditional usage when it comes to football and boxing and MMA, and I don't think that's going to dramatically change in the next two years. Here, you know, five years, sure, but two years—that's a very short time frame. And so, I, I do think that they're faced with a, a quandary where they have to figure out: Do we have enough? kind of pay-per-view stars for us to want to continue to invest ourselves as a pay-per-view thing. I could certainly see them moving more and more stuff over to kind of a fight pass situation. But the challenge with them is I don't know if per subscriber, you know, type fee stuff is going to work for them or they're going to continue having to try to get this kind of per event buy information because they've written so many contracts out there that are about buys, right? And you really risk that basis of people you have if you're not able to deliver to them pay-per-view stars. And I do think that's something that has happened to WWE in that transition where they went away from pay-per-views and suddenly it's really hard to entice all these stars with the idea of saying, hey, by the way, we're not going to give you a cut of the WWE Network subscription fees and we're just going to kind of pay you what we think is fair every year. Yeah. I, I think the uh, the fantasy of getting UFC – or WWE or whatever other sport on a on an OTT platform, whether it's their own like Fight Pass or WWE Network, or and you're talking like the core programming. You're not talking peripheral. Yeah, I'm. We're not talking 205 Live. You're talking Raw. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about Raw and SmackDown or like the rest of UFC stuff, the stuff that isn't on pay per view. Uf oh, not so not UFC 300, but just whatever else UFC is showing on U television. UFC Fight Night. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think you still need that, that gateway that only the bundle, the cable networks, can provide because they have a greater access to casual viewers, I guess. And uh, there's too much money still in TV rights. You know, as, well, long as, as long as people are still subscribing at the rates that they are subscribing to their cable or satellite uh, providers, there's still going to be money in there. And, right? and it's a partnership. It's, it's something where I think the brands themselves see it as – we, if we contribute to the degradation of this platform, we're hurting our market value because I don't think they feel they can get as much money in that digital world, the OTT world right now. And so if they just contribute to destroying Fox, that does them no good because then, you know, no one's winning and you're making less money. So to grow the pie right now, they still see it as let's stay here on on this pay TV window bundle. And even for that, you know, Fox is more than a pay TV window bundle because it's on network television quite a lot. And I think that's a, that's a key element, too, is that WWE gets very little network exposure by NBC. They get lots of exposure by USA. And of course, they do like the WrestleMania, you know, highlight show. They did that like once a year. And of course, Head Saturday Night main event and things of that nature. And they didn't do that great. Yeah, tough so enough. they kind of and tough enough. So they've been well, that was never on network television. Oh, no. Um, but uh, just my point being that 
UFC has benefited a lot from kind of mainstream. You can watch us on Fox and WWE is not benefiting from that right now. And so it'll be interesting to see would a different partner find a better way to highlight them? Would Fox be a better person to highlight them or CBS or Disney ABC? Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, what, you're talking about, like, with the, the destruction of Fox or whatever. Like, if if television, I don't think this is going to happen, but if if television, maybe, I think this could happen, though. Maybe television becomes more marginalized in people's lives and, and in culture, and that the people who still watch traditional television just become older and older and older and older. And I don't know if that gets replaced, if that empty space gets replaced by something. Maybe it just Do we have movie theaters? We do have movie theaters. Do people go to movie theaters as often anymore? No, but we still figured out ways to make money off of them. Yeah. But so, I'm just saying, like, what, what does that do to, to culture and businesses? Like, can we still create new fans? Is there some other gateway? Maybe well, is, is there some other gateway that people are using, especially like kids are using, to get interested in things like wrestling today that maybe we don't pay enough attention to? Well, I mean, video game is a huge thing, yeah. right? Like Action figures, like, and I think YouTube, too. Oh, YouTube. I mean, it's all about the YouTube. But I, I do think it ends up being the pipe that you're arguing over is just what is the pipe? How do people get access to the pipe and what do they find on the pipe? And the pipe can be your smartphone. The pipe could be your Internet connection. The pipe could be your laptop at work. You know, I, I do think a lot of things have to transform. You know, sometimes I feel like everyone says my 10 year old only watches YouTube television's dead. And what I would argue it is, what are they doing when they reach age 18? What are they doing when they reach age 26? What are they doing when they reach age 35? And are those behaviors dramatically different or not? Because I still hear about young people that want to go to the movie theaters. Yeah. So there's something there that says not all media has to come in the form of a screen that's the size of your hand. But part but, of the reason why you're going to the movie theater is because there's exclusive content there. I can't watch that movie on my TV yet because for the most part that's how people market it they want you to go to pay whatever a movie costs these days like was it $12 and to, so you can sit there to watch this new movie that you're not going to be able to watch in any form for a number of months yeah and so and it's also about the communal experience right so that's why we're seeing an improvement so much in the movie theater industry and of course they they are also at a crossroads here of trying to decide what to do and a lot of these industries have been propped up. You know, I, I heard a great story this week all about uh, – they call them like vampire companies or uh, zombie companies. And do you know what a zombie company is? No. What's a zombie company? A zombie company is a company that basically exists that every year loses money but continues to get basically um, a line of credit from something and then is able to just keep existing in the marketplace. And so this has been a big problem in Europe where some of these like clothing companies have, you know, there's this one uh, Italian clothing company and they had lost money. I think they said like nine out of the last 10 years and they owed probably billions in, in like loans to people. And the banks keep renewing their loans because they're afraid to write off the entire value of the loan and let the company go under. And as a result, the company is trying to sell kind of discount stuff, so it's trying to undercut other players in the marketplace. And it's, in a sense, kind of lose-lose for everyone because you have people trying to undercut other people in the marketplace, but they're never going to turn a profit and all these shareholders and all these people are never going to get their money back. And the government is too afraid to basically write down all these loans, right? And the banks are too afraid. And so 
the existence of cheap money has sometimes propped up industries in unusual ways. And we've even seen this with entertainment because there was a period of time when the Chinese were very nervous about what was going to happen with their money. And so Chinese investment got huge all around the world until it, it kind of like like a faucet got turned off a couple months ago. But there was a, a great concern that when they were going to free float the yuan that essentially uh, – or the, the RMB that people would – basically lose a lot of their value of the money. And that's why you saw them gobbling up hotel chains and movie chains and other things. And so sometimes I think that we get a, a um, it's hard for us to tell whether an industry is doing well or not just because people are willing to invest in it. Cause there's so many other motivations that go behind why are, why are people pumping money into certain companies? It, it sounds and like so, wrestling. Like we don't really know how healthy <laughs> wrestling is because these TV networks keep pumping money into it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, that's my I guess my my dual point, which is that when the money is not connected to the health of your business, but rather to an expectation or to a risk aversion of something else, you can very easily miscalculate the popularity, the uh, interest, the uh, accessibility, and the opportunity that exists in that business anymore. And so yeah, yeah, it's exactly like that with like live live event fees, people pumping money in. Well, that's not actually related to the ticket sales. That's not related to the merchandise sales. That's not related to pay per view buys. You know, so it's it's tough for us to say is Roman Reigns a success just because WWE is bigger today than it was fifteen years ago. It's because they have escalating escalating TV rights fees, most of all, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, there's there's security in it for a lot of these companies too, but uh, ultimately they do have to deal with shareholders and and whatnot. And this was something I was tweeting about this morning was the idea of the molecule of WWE. So a molecule is the smallest piece of something that still retains the element of the properties of that that element or that compound. And I was like, what would a molecule of WWE look like? Would it be the uh, you know the top stars? So is it you know I have to have Cena and Orton or Lesnar or Reigns? Is it that it would be um, the McMahon's? You know Triple H and and Vince McMahon have to be in there. Is it the tertiary people like the uh, um, Kane and Big Show and Jericho? People that have had very long careers in WWE that are recognizable that aren't necessarily the top stars, but they're always there. Is it the big stars like Flair and Undertaker, Hogan and Austin and Rock who aren't always there but you know you still associate it with it? Or is it is it all about the modern talent, AJ and Nakamura and Charlotte and Asuka and Shield and New Day and Usos and Cesaro and Owens and Zayn? And uh, somebody wrote me a really good – like when I, when I said like what would this molecule look like? Um, do, do you want to hear what they said or do you have a, do you have an, a guess? I don't know. It, it, I think it would have to be a very heavy uh, element. That, that could be symbolized with WWE. It would have. So they said it's a single match with two of the best wrestlers alive, but the cameras are pointed at the opposing McMahon's ringside. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was a I thought that was a cheeky but pretty accurate answer there from Ian Kidd. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was like, yeah, I like that. I like that. That's that's kind of what I would say is a good in in encapsulation of it. And and it got me thinking a lot about like what would WWE be without this thing. So if you took Vince McMahon out of WWE, is it still WWE? Well, what, if you, you, what do you mean? Like what are the consequences of taking out Vince McMahon? Like taking, taking him out as a booker or just taking him out as an on-screen character throughout its history? I'm just trying to decide what is the smallest amount that makes it still WWE. So like if you did John Cena and then seven NXT talents on a show, is that still a WWE house show? It's a, it's less of a WWE house show. 
but, but is it's it? still I think it's still enough. I think it's still enough where like Cena has so much of that brand halo around him. But like there's other people that I'd be like, you can't just put uh, Harper and Rowan on a show and make it a WWE show. You'd have to add a lot of other peripheral WWE talent, Fandango, and everyone would have to be on that show. Yeah, well, I, th- I think a show with, say, a house show with Cena and a bunch of NXT guys is a is a house show that draws less than a house show with Cena and a bunch of main roster people. But I'm even trying to get to beyond just drawing. What is WWE? What is it when we distill it? And is it, or is it just the television show? Is it Raw, SmackDown, WrestleMania, SummerSlam? Is that what makes it WWE? And regardless of who's on that card, that's still WWE. Because what's, what's the I, threshold for? What's the qualifier for being <laughs> for being WWE? Is it a molecule of it, man? A molecule. It, but, but is it is it like okay? The majority of of the audience, or the majority of a audience, or a general audience, will say, "Yeah, I recognize that as WWE." Or like, what's the threshold? Well, that's a good question. I, I'm is, not or sure. Is, or is there some objective standard for being WWE that one can just, qualify or not qualify for? Well, I'm just trying to think more and more about what it would be a new version of WWE as we do these TV, deal, TV deals. Because what if we get to the point when we talk about you know WWE owned by a different company, not owned by the McMahon family, or not pre- predominantly owned by the McMahon family, but still booked by Vince? Is it is WWE the story of the McMahons and a top baby face fighting a top heel. Is that the story or is it the memories we associate with WWEs from all, all the years and connecting that story? So it's the undertaker because he connects us to when we were younger and we saw him as a, or Hogan or someone else or Austin or rock for this modern generation. Is it, is it the actual in wing product? Is it the production of it? You know, that was um Bix's article this week. Right in Deadspin, where he talked about uh, WWE's production should be the strongest asset, but it keeps ruining shows. Um, I don't know what your thoughts were on that piece he wrote. Uh, did you get a chance to read it? I did. I I think I agree with pretty much everything he's saying there. I I find WWE very hard to watch, especially compared to other wrestling products currently, because the, because the camera does change so much. Like I, I can't focus, and and it's very different from watching wrestling from any other era or watching even older WWE because like the camera just doesn't stay still, and I can't take in, I can't take in what's happening. I can't see the moves really well. Um, there, there's that uh, that that video creator who's who does a Patreon that we we contributed to, who does all those New Japan videos, and uh, he has one about New Japan's production style, which I thought was just really smart. And really interesting. He, he talks about like how New Japan uses camera angles, and uh, and like like one of the points he makes is that they use wide shots a lot, so you can see the action. Um, and obviously, that's something that WWE doesn't want to do. Like WWE's, and I know the point Bix made is that this is kind of influenced by the legacy of of the WWF style, which was you know in the '80s, I guess when when Vince took over, or even you know in the mid '80s when it was starting to get really popular and going national that the wrestling style wasn't very good, I guess. There was a, what they, I guess at least what Bix calls a house style that, um, you know, is, I think the reputation of old WF is like, it's just burly guys, you know, not doing stuff that's that interesting to each other. And, uh, and I think, you know, Vince wanted to do a lot of camera angle switches and do a lot of production stuff to protect uh, moves from looking fake, you know. 
But uh, yeah, and 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 so maybe maybe the molecule of WWE is WWE production. If I could finish that point, though, like, but then the the, the obvious problem today is that they've the wrestling style has changed a great deal, and they have you know performers who are more than capable for the most part. At least they have many of them who are more than capable of you know putting on a match where you don't need that, but yet they continue to do it. And and you know they're they're almost. I think it's kind of interesting to imagine what this NXT generation will come up to be of people that are being trained for the process of what it's like to be on WWE television. And so is it going to create cookie cutter type promos and entrances and wrestling styles? Or are we still going to see, you know, unique differences in how people are presenting themselves and or, or are they not going to be able to? You know, is it going to look too similar? And I, I always think that is one of the biggest issues with WWE wrestling is that you don't feel like hour one and hour two and hour three were done by different people. And so sometimes the way a television show can really define itself is that it it's shot in a different way or it tells a story in a different way that you feel like, oh, this episode stood out from this episode because it's not so cookie cutter. And with WWE, I sometimes feel like it's three hours of cookie cutter. Yeah. That said, football games are going to be shot very similarly and produced very similarly, and hockey games are and whatnot. So, you know, maybe that's the live sports versus creative entertainment element. The, the impression I get, though, is when people produce, um, when t- TV networks produce football events, for example, I don't feel that the people producing them are holding hold the sport itself in contempt. And I feel that that's, that's what W Production tells me is that the people who are producing this show – are sort of resentful of the fact that they have to produce wrestling. And they and this is Vince McMahon's vision, is that he doesn't just do wrestling, he does entertainment. And they, they kind of wish that they were doing something more than wrestling. They kind of wish they want to they push this thing that they're doing off as some bigger, grander entertainment rather than, rather than just loving pro wrestling and trying to get people to appreciate it for what it is. Um, I, I, I hear what you're here. saying. I do think sometimes we, we project onto production people our emotions about this thing in such a way that you know if i show you a series of random images your brain creates a story about them and my and the depending on the music i use underneath i can make you hate it or love it or feel happy and so sometimes i feel like with production we throw against it our own feelings about how the company is working at that time and i think video production tells me that but that's also supported by i don't know how they do promos how they address history how they treat their fans yeah yeah I hear what you're saying. I think it's an interesting uh, uh, debate point for us to have. And uh, I I think there's no right answer, wrong answer here. Um, you, you bring up, you know, New Japan, how different it is. And one of the big things that came out this week was that New Japan is not going to go on a traditional pay-per-view approach yeah. uh, for their uh, Wrestle Kingdom show, which I saw that you were – other people have put out – you know, Twitter polls about where do you think New Japan's going to land for attendance, and I think you you thought it might be north of thirty thousand. It looked like. I don't think I said what I think about it, but I was planning on saying it here. I think. Well, I could tell by the way you tweeted, though. Oh, did you? Was I leading things. in my question? No. Because <laughs> I even just tried joking. to make the um, the options so they were just like a, a whole numbers, whole tens of thousands, but. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it didn't. Wasn't that the choice that won? There's a neck and neck tie. Let me see what the latest is. This is a 24 hour poll that's not over with. But uh, I put out a poll saying, What do you think the Wrestle Kingdom 12 attendance is going to be? And that's on January 4th uh, of, of this coming year. 
So Wrestle Kingdom 10 drew about 25,000. Wrestle Kingdom 11 drew about 26,000. So what do you think Wrestle Kingdom 12 is going to do? And uh, I said, is it going to do under 20,000? Is it going to do in the 20,000s? Is it going to do in the 30,000s? Or is it going to do 40,000 or more? I think you've got to get a lot more granular than that. You need more granularity in your poll there. Options. Can you do it with four, four options? Sure. Well, I think you start at 20,000. You, you've established here that 90% of the people think it's going to be between 20,000 and 40,000, right? When I originally composed this tweet, I, I wrote like, all right, do you think it's going to be less than 25? But, or do you think it's going to be like more than 30 or more than 35? But I felt that that would be too leading because that would be like me saying, hey, it's going to be better than it was. Well, I think prior. you've established though the threshold is 90% of the people think it's between 20 and 40. So let's get it down to where... 50% of the people or more agree on something. So what we could do next is I should do an, an, a subsequent poll with more granularity between 20,000 and 40,000. Absolutely. And and you might even, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, but anyway, my answer is I think it's going to be well into the 30,000s. And, and I'm just, so do you think that they're doing the right thing here to say, okay, we're going to have a show. It's going to have 30,000 people there. Uh, we're going to have Chris Jericho versus Kenny Omega there. We're going to have an opportunity to reach a lot of audiences, both in Japan, but then also specifically in the United States where you're trying to do a big expansion play. Um, for them to just say, we're doing New Japan World. That's how you watch the show. That's what you need to do. Even though it's allegedly Fight TV offered money to New Japan guarantees, basically, yeah. to stream it. And do you think they're leaving money on the table? Yeah, I agree with, with Dave's point here. They, they could, just because, for one thing, they'll sell the pay-per-view for a higher price point than 999 yen. Um, they'll sell it. They could have sold it for probably at least $30, right? And they could have gotten that. And it still would have worked as a as a gateway to get new fans in. And I think your, your argument for putting this only on New Japan World because you want to gain subscribers would be more compelling if you had a more uh, accessible service. That, yeah. And by that, I mean more English. They do have English commentary, but a more English website and a uh, more accessibility on Apple TV, Roku, and game consoles. It's really hard yeah. for, me to, for me and for most people to watch New Japan World on our TVs. And and I think they're making us a, a fundamental miscalculation in understanding what the mindset is, which is I want to watch Wrestle Kingdom. I don't want to become a New Japan World subscriber. Those are different things. Much in the same way, a lot of people are going to say, I want to watch WrestleMania. I don't want to be a WWE Network subscriber. Yeah, I, I think the average English-speaking wrestling fan has an aversion to signing up from New Japan World just because if they actually do log on to that website, they see some English, but they do see a lot of Japanese, and they're like, I don't know, is this going to is this gonna charge me a, like a currency conversion rate? Am I going to accidentally put my credit card in wrong here? And and just the idea of saying there's so many things where people will go and buy a digital version of something or even a physical version of something on Amazon because they'd rather just have that thing they want rather than sign up for a service which may provide this or may not provide this because people are willing to spend money for things for discrete things, not for the opportunity that might down the line interest them. They're not interested in the back catalog. They're not interested in this and that. They might become interested in it and you're going to convert some people. But I think they're much better off selling the experience of, would you like to watch Russell Kingdom? 
here's what you do to watch this one event. And then later you can say, wow, I'd like to sign up for New Japan World. I'd like to do this. And it's a great opportunity. But I think you're throwing it away by kind of forcing people into a subscription model when a per event purchase model is still something that I think a lot of people are interested in because they don't have an interest in New Japan. They have an interest in Wrestle Kingdom 12. Yeah. And if you can sell it on traditional pay-per-view, you're also offering people an experience or you're, you're trying to get them to make a purchase that is very much like a purchase that they've probably made in the past. Like the people who are going to, if, if Wrestle Kingdom 12 was offered on pay-per-view, you'd be marketing it to people who a lot of them have probably purchased a WWE pay-per-view uh, before. So they know what the experience is like. They know they can trust it. They know that they can go pick up the remote and hit the buttons and make the purchase, and they're going to be able to watch this thing on their TV. And I think the average potential customer for Wrestle Kingdom 12 hasn't got a great idea about how they're going to put this on their TV. And, and people ask, why is New Japan not made more strides about you know making it more accessible? A, there are you know hurdles to get through to get your app uh, available and accessible by all these Western companies and these certain markets. But B, there's a lot more strict control in Japan over this kind of stuff where Netflix did not show up till 2015 in Japan and um, you know Samurai TV has a streaming service but they will not let you actually stream um, through like an OTT service but you can stream to computers, tablets and phones but not on televisions. Uh, and so they specifically in Japan have made rights management to kind of prevent people from cutting the cord you can say in a lot of ways. And so I'm not surprised to see New Japan doing this. And this is something that that uh, Chris Charlson wrote about in his book Lions Pride back in 2015. Um, page 188 uh, is where I found it on like an Amazon book when I was looking through it. And yeah, things have changed. They're on they're on Google uh, Fire Stick. They're on Chromecast. You know, there there are opportunities now. So they're making headway. But I, I tweeted this on Thanksgiving, and I still fundamentally believe it, which is I think the Japanese mentality of approaching the U.S. market place when it comes to media is going to be their biggest impediment is that you have to approach the u.s media with a u.s media mindset much in the same way you have to promote japan with a japanese media mindset they're very different places and new japan has found that it's risk aversion you know they always bring too little merchandise they still book kind of a half u.s half japanese show and it's like people want the experience from New Japan. They want the full thing. But New Japan's got to find a way to give people that entry point that makes sense and, and is the right way of doing it. Yeah, I, I think on the whole in the L.A. shows, they did a, a good job. The Billy Gunn and Tanahashi match shouldn't have happened. But other than that, I think they've done all right. I mean, people were skeptical about Cody early on, but I think he's done all right. He's done a good job. And... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. So, it, yeah, just, I, I agree. There's a lot of value among whatever U.S. customers or English-speaking customers to unlock there, because people do want to spend time watching New Japan, but they don't know how to do that in a legitimate way that they're really comfortable with and trust. So, a lot of that time, I think, gets spent on Daily Motion instead of New Japan World. Sure, sure. No, that's very true. That, I mean, that's where I go to watch my New Japan <laughs> is usually Daily Motion. Um, one thing that won't be in Daily Motion, how's this for a transition, is uh, George Berrios at the UBS conference, December 4th. It's a Monday, 9.30 a.m. Uh, this is a conference that comes at the end of the year, and I find a lot of reporters don't bother listening to this little snippet you know george kind of has a, In a fact, season no reporters listen to it <laughs> except for you and me if we count as reporters 
Yeah, like George has a season. He does a lot of these media events right around WrestleMania, and then it goes dead. And then December, he does this UBS conference, and he's done this for years, actually. And there's been some really big news in this conference in the past, and very few people ever seem to notice it. And so, as you pointed out last year, you and I listened to it days later. Like I, I was just like, yeah. guys, anyone listen to this? It's no like five responded. days later, we each of us listened to it. And then we're like, wow, do you realize that he mentions here that uh, uh, they are doing business with – what did he say? ICW and yeah. – and I remember the moment I was, I was driving on the thruway to training and I was listening to it through my phone, through my car. And like he all of a sudden George Barrio says, oh, yeah, we just made deals with ICW in progress. And I was like, whoa, my ears just perked. Yeah. And as we've said many times, George is not the type of guy who's plugged into the wrestling scene such that he's going to accidentally say ICW when he really means NXT. So it just it's it will be fun. It will be a good show. Um, I do recommend people listen to it. Uh, there's questions. This might be one of the conferences where they let you sometimes submit questions live, and uh, the moderators don't know better, and so they'll read your questions sometimes, which uh, always amuses me. Um, you need to submit a question. I have so I did submit a couple. Oh, probably a year and a half ago, I submitted a question, and the moderator read it, and I could yeah. tell George was not pleased. I think I remember that, that. My question got through. It was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, it'll be fun. It's, uh, unfortunately you can't buy tickets to this event unless you're, you're going to go to this big expensive UBS conference in New York. Um, what question should, should we ask him? Uh, I would probably focus on the India as a future thing. I would probably, cause by that point we would have had the uh, Indian house show, right? Yeah. Wait, when no, is the no, WWE? No, it's, it's, it's a few days later. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I believe it's the ninth and, and the conference we're talking about is the fourth, um, in, I'll pull up my calendar, but yeah. Yep, you're right. Uh, December 8th, house show was canceled, so it might even be the 7th. Nope, you're right, the 9th. The 9th will be the the super show. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that would probably be my, my question is just saying, hey, you've talked so much about India as this enormous marketplace. You just finished a multi-month reign with a, uh, a Canadian Indian champ. And you were unable to even run two house shows in India. Uh, you promised kind of the world when it came to WWE Network in India, but we're not actually getting any follow-up on that. Can you explain, you know, what what are the leading indicators we should be looking at for WWE in India and how you're going to, to convince us all that this is really going to be a huge opportunity for you? And do you expect that your television rights fees are going to continue to escalate at the rates they did over the last five years in the Indian marketplace? Yeah, And you're, you're specifically asking about the, t- the Indian TV deal. Yeah, which is – it's a big question mark to me of whether or not they're going to get a big renewal deal like that because that's a great example of a marketplace where when it's hot, it's hot. And when it's not, you can really you know lose out on and it's hard to say whether the Indian media market deals are going to stay as hot as they've been. Um, but no matter how hot things get, you can always get a ticket to them if you use uh, SeatGeek, you know. Uh, I have the SeatGeek application on my phone. It's by far the easiest way to shop for tickets, and you can be anywhere, just a couple taps, and you can find seats. I actually use the SeatGeek app to look at all the tickets that are available for WrestleMania 34 in New Orleans, and it's a, a pretty good app because it's it's designed to make your buying 
experience for tickets easier than ever. Save you time and money by searching for multiple ticket sites to compare prices and amazing deals. And it gives you the most bang for your buck because it grades every ticket based on the value you get and immediately helps you identify the best seats that fit your budget. Every purchase is fully guaranteed and you can shop for tickets in SeatGeek with confidence and you can make it your go-to app for finding the best deals for every type of ticket from sports to concerts to comedy to theater. You cannot buy uh, uh, tickets to my improv show yet. I was just going to say. I was going to ask. But that's because we don't sell tickets. It's a cover. $2 gets you into Can Can Wonderland every Friday night. Um, you, however, if you wanted to save 20 bucks on your ticket fees, all you have to do is – you get 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase because you're a listener to WrestleNomics Radio. You download the app. You enter the promo code WE, you know, the second half of WWE, WE, and that's the promo code, 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. And uh, I was paid to say that. I'm going to admit that uh, uh, freely here. But uh, I think it's a cool service, and I'm glad to see people, you know, sponsoring podcasts. Yeah, we appreciate that. We appreciate SeatGeek. Uh, we are a big-time podcast now with Big, big listenership. So we have big-time sponsors like SeatGeek now. And so we're, we're really thankful to them, to Voices of Wrestling, and to Audio Boom for, for giving us this enormous audience that we will now uh, that, that, that will now use our promo code to buy tickets to exciting events around the world. Speaking of ICW with George Barrios, they just held their big show. They drew, what did it say, 4,500? I believe so, 4,500. Let me get to that part in the doc. Compared to about 4,000 in 2015 and almost 6,100 in 2016. But still, 4,500 is one of the biggest shows in Europe that you're going to get for a wrestling show that's not labeled WWE. Yeah, I mean, like outside of the big promotions in Japan and besides WWE, this is maybe the biggest. Somebody can correct me, right? There'll be some but actuallys here, maybe. But And is anybody besides WWE and New Japan, DDT, and. Uh, Maybe all Japan and Big Japan at Sumo Hall. Is anybody else going to draw a crowd as big as this? Dragon Gate. Oh, besides, <laughs> besides Dragon Gate. I'm talking about the, the big <laughs> CMLL. CMLL, yeah, AAA. Yeah, they'll yep. do well. But, I mean, yep. there's not a lot. There's not a lot. So this is this is a, it, another example of, of a one time a year they can hit a big market. And, uh, hey, NXT in San Antonio only did probably 1,400. ROH was, quote, sold out. I don't know whether that was more or less. Did you ever get a, a count on that? No, that, that's all I found in the Observer. Uh, there wasn't a results section, I believe, in the most recent episode. No, nope, it wasn't. sold out. And uh, Starcade in Thanksgiving, though, you know, you want to talk about drawing big uh, WWE doing that Thanksgiving Starcade show on on Saturday. So I guess it wasn't Thanksgiving Thanksgiving weekend, but um, I've heard every number on the wrestling boards from under eight thousand to more than twelve thousand there. But they said it was pretty well attended. That's so really definitely good for a house show, though. Really good for a Saturday house show, for sure. And making it a special show definitely helped them a lot of that marketplace. I was very sad to see that the club versus Rock and Roll Express did not happen. Oh, the way they kind of no, no, they teased it, you know, on um they teased it on on Twitter, but in the end, I don't think the club was even on the show and a Rock and Roll Express just came out, did a promo and dance with New Day. Really? Yeah, so I was, I was, I thought that would be really cool. Was kind of you know like the opportunity to see Rock and Roll Express wrestling on a WWE house show, yeah. you know, and, and pretty clearly the club would be uh, willing to do a job for them, and you know that'd be a pretty fun match. I did see that uh, Arn Anderson gave Dolph Ziggler a spine buster. Did you see that? I haven't seen the clip of it, but I read that he was the outside enforcer in that match. And uh, I guess Goldust came out in the Goldust like it's entrance, the natural Dustin Rhodes. suit, and then took it off, and then he, I, I guess the uh, the natural theme song started to play and he took it off and he had the Dustin Rhodes stuff on. 
Yeah, and, uh, so I think and there's, there's a really good video of uh, he, he does an interview afterwards talking about Dusty and talking about the Starcade tradition. I thought it was really good. Um, and they had Rick there uh, with Charlotte. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a big event. So I, I like the fact that they're getting creative in some of this house show uh, planning. And it, it goes to prove that you can find traditions that you can um, earmark to, to make something more valuable. And uh, it, it also gives me hope for that, that tour that's going to start, you know, on Christmas Day and go through New Year's, that this might have some good ticket sales for them. Yeah. But again, you've got here anywhere from under 8,000 for the Starcade show to 12,000. But either way, even if it's only 8,000, the average attendance for like a U.S. or Canadian house show is about 4,000 or so, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe 4,500. So this is like double what they might yeah, have done. Yeah, this otherwise. is like what Raw would draw normally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, do th- I think it's like... I think like NXT has it has an analog to this Starcade show where I think NXT is like WWE's response to indie wrestling because they saw probably they saw they the Wrestlecade or whoever it is that does a big Thanksgiving show in that yeah, area exactly like I think I think WWE sees that they had all these indies piggybacking off of the WrestleMania weekends and thought well why don't why aren't we doing something to that there's a demand here why aren't we capitalizing on this demand more and I think it's the same thing in this case there's like yeah what we, what we said it's WrestleCade or it's whatever convention or whatever annual t- tradition they do in the Carolinas I'm sure somebody knows better about where they have basically this reunion of NWA talent and uh, I mean WWE owns all those trademarks and they can certainly make deals with with all those you know wrestlers so why not yeah and i mean if if you look at how many people they have signed legend deals with um th- there's a lot of talent they have out there that they could leverage for these kind of you know regional talent meetings to make it a bigger star thing and yeah. so i would love if they did i wonder are they gonna be able to repeat this i don't know because like i guess nwa has the, the it was the last uh legacy to die i guess right i guess you, maybe they could do something like this in philadelphia like have an ecw reunion show every year or something like that like, <laughs> i think like we've a, already seen tna like a, a one and night everyone stand. else beat that to death <laughs> well like one uh, as a house show don't be like it's not a one-night stand pay-per-view but maybe they could do maybe it's not uh, maybe it is done to death too much right now maybe it, it'll take a decade or two but yeah, what other but traditions I, I, are there out there that they could rehash Mid-South, maybe, maybe we'll know. see an fcw uh uh Ooh. member show from what was it tampa where they used to have their school. Um, so only a, a couple other quick ones. Uh, legal update, uh, the CTE lawsuit. Remember we talked about the in-camera affidavits and we're saying how they filed it? Well, WWE is actually questioning whether or not they, they followed the judge's order and actually filed all those in-camera affidavits um, in their response to the second amended complaint. They had three big complaints, and the first one was they don't think they complied with the order. The second one was they said that um, – uh, it fails to correct some of the devi- the the um what do they call it the uh, defects that were previously in the lawsuit and then the third one was that they tried to add Mr. Fuji to the lawsuit and they're saying that they couldn't just basically throw him in in the middle of the lawsuit without explaining um that why he was being added to this lawsuit uh, post mortem so. There was was actually questions on that because you and I had talked about, I guess they had done it. And nope, apparently WWE was also listening to this podcast and said, ha-ha, mm-hmm. and decided to file. No, no, of course they no, filed. No, we know George is listening. He's listening, yes. he's listening in his big office right now on the top floor at, uh, in Stanford. The one person I do hope is listening is is uh, the Freedom of, of Information people at U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services because they still owe me some stuff. Uh, which, 
yeah, yeah. They said um, my request was was put into a tier, and then you know you have to wait so many weeks for it to be done. And so I filed it back in July, and they said it normally takes 120 days. Well, 120 days is like last week, and I looked it up this morning, and I'm still like request 80 out of 500. And what's funny is some of the other requests I did that same day, I already got one of them. I got a response on another one of them saying they will never give it to me. <laughs> you know, um, Well, one of them, I got the John Tenta file because you're allowed to request basically files of anyone who died who was a prominent personality from another country mm-hmm. that worked in the U.S. So I got the John Tenta file. I tried to get the Giant Gonzalez file, and they claimed they have no record of him, which you know, I, I was like, I guarantee you he stood out in your files in one way or another. Um and then uh, I'm, I've been waiting for files on Test and Ludwig Borga now. So well, maybe uh, maybe when George was uh, shredding the files, doing doing that cleanup one day, he accidentally shredded some active files. You know, it's it, one of the reasons I'll, I'll be very curious about Tess and Ludwig Borga because uh, the Tenta file, along with a lot of the other files, are really, really WCW heavy because WCW did a good job of really documenting, you know, all the forms that they needed to get these guys working visas to flip over to WCW. And the WWF side of things is a lot more thin. Like there's a lot less documents there on a lot of these people. Um, so it'll be very in- – so you're you're usually looking for people that worked for both companies because then there's a very good, you know, kind of paper record where more than one company was bringing them into work in a, a very high level. But um, so I'll be very curious about Test because obviously he worked for TNA and he worked for WWE. Um, and Ludwig Borga, uh, I don't think he ever really worked for WCW. He worked on a New Japan show that WCW also showed. Um, but he pretty much was WWE only. But of course, he was kind of a high profile Finnish politician later on afterwards as well. He did UFC so, too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, so I'll be very curious to see, you know, what files show up for those two guys. Um, it'll speak a lot to that. But like I said, the John Tenta file was was very heavily WCW centric, much like Chris Benoit's file was very heavily WCW centric. But we have seen some old, old WWF ones like the Andre the Giant one or the Big John. Was it Big John Stud? I don't know. It's one of the other you ones. You and Bix now. Yeah, me, Bix, and all the other supporters of the professional wrestling lawsuits. What is it called? It's the Professional Wrestling Legal Research and Preservation Group. Mm-hmm. Uh we have lots of interesting files, and if anyone is interested in contributing or learning more about this project, reach out to me. And for a, uh, a small uh, donation to the project, we give you access to all the files that we've gathered, which is hundreds and hundreds of files. And just this past week here, I was adding all the files from the Larry Zabisco versus Vince McMahon and Chris Jericho living legend lawsuit, where Larry Zabisco sued them over using that name as a Jericho nickname. And they even got Bruno to testify in that suit, actually, back in the early 2000s. Which was interesting. So. Bruno, Bruno testified in, in whose favor? I think Bruno was just testifying about all the different people that have used the name Living Legend. Yeah. And he was called, I believe, as a WWE witness at the time. And basically one large section of Vince's testimony is all about how Larry Zabisco only started using this Living Legend nickname as part of his feud with Bruno Sammartino at the time. And uh, they they end up getting this English professor to to generate a list of everyone who's ever been called a living legend, and it's just hundreds of people. 
(laughs) So it's pretty funny with like all the different – and then they even point out they're like, we can find uh, examples of hundreds of wrestlers that have used this as a nickname. So in the end, Zabisco lost and uh, actually had to pay some fees back to WWE, some of the court fees. And in the middle of it too, there was all this weirdness about Zabisco I think was filing for bankruptcy at the same time. And he uh, was inconsistent, let's say, with some of his records. And so that was getting him in trouble with this lawsuit as well because he was kind of uh, ignoring this lawsuit as part of – as a possible asset in the bankruptcy filing, which I, I don't think you can do. Like if you know that you, you're doing something that you're trying to say is worth a lot of money, you can't just then kind of ignore it when you're filing for bankruptcy. And he so. still ended up in the Hall of Fame even though he was sued. Zabisco? Yeah, yeah. Is he, he in the WWE he, Hall of Fame? He just went into the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. Remember he had, he had like this long speech where he kept losing his place. Remember that? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot about oh, that. Go watch it on your WWE Network. Um, Let's see here. WWE Hall of Fame Class of 2015. You're right. Wow. This lawsuit was probably 2004, 2005. So, yeah, that's really interesting. But, yeah, it's a good example of, of you know, talking about burying the hatchet versus same thing. Like uh, they were talking all about Kamala and his, you know, surgery Uh on the WWE website and ESPN and all these other places. Well, Kamala's suing them right now as part of the CTE lawsuit. Same Snuka's family was. Yeah. You know, it's it's always funny to see kind of the two hands. Yeah. Well, um, before we go too, too deep here, I, I will say uh, we have a bonus uh, episode of show that we're going to tack on here at some point where uh, I interviewed you for a good hour all yeah. about the uh, inside the mind of Brandon Howard Thurston. Yeah. What's the uh, place? So uh, people can enjoy that if they're looking for some additional uh, WrestleNomics content. Somebody asked me a WrestleNomics question where they said, how often do wrestlers return to the WWE after they've been fired or uh, quit? And I I decided to challenge myself. So I I drew a brand new data set. I used some new techniques using Power Query in Excel that I had not used previously as a way of saving some time. How many hours of work did did you uh, have to do to do this? To do this, uh, it was a Wednesday night I started, and uh, I think I calculated – or Tuesday night maybe it was, and I calculated the answer on Wednesday night, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe between four and six mm-hmm. you know, to get a, a very simple answer. <laughs> maybe less, maybe more. I don't know. I was watching TV and just kind of hanging out while I was doing it. Sometimes but, um, I feel like we, we could have cured cancer by now if we had just <laughs> our energies in different places. <laughs> Very true. But, Very but, true. But no, go on. T- tell me about how many people have well, and so, left you know, and come back. It's, it's not the easiest thing to just calculate and say, okay, well, did they quit? Did they leave? Were they injured? So what I did is I, I, I pulled all the results. I put them into a big spreadsheet, and then you have to spend all the time cleansing it. And so you have to go through and you have to identify, well, Dustin Rhodes, Gold Dust, the artist formerly known as Gold Dust. These are all the same person. Um. And so I went through and I found about 400 people where I could see an example where they they wrestled, had like more than, say, 20 matches in a year. The next year, they either stopped wrestling or they trailed off. So that was kind of their final year. There was a gap. And then they came back and had another year where they did more than 20. And I found that 20 percent of my 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 group of 400 people looking between 1990 and 2017 had come back. Now, some of these are false positives. They're people that didn't actually leave the company but probably got injured or demoted for a period of time. So, for instance, I think I have both Brad Maddox and uh, uh, Shane Helms on here. And both of them – at least Shane Helms I know got like a serious spinal injury and went out for like a year 
and then he became like a commentator and then he came back. And Brad Maddox had like a year and then he kind of disappeared and then he kind of came back. And I think he was under contract the whole time, but he might have been injured or just, you know, might have been developmental and those matches weren't being captured. Um, but, you know, you, you have people like Goldust or Brian Kendrick or John Tenta or Jim Neidhart or Flair or Shane McMahon or Joey Mercury or, you know, Brian Adams or Bill Buchanan or Scott Steiner or Ginger Mahal. on here. Did JBL have a break in service? I think he – I don't. again, I don't think he actually um, stopped working for WWE, but I think he stopped wrestling okay. uh, at, at some period of time. Uh, or where he was transitioning from, you know, um, Blackjack Bradshaw into some other gimmick or something at the time. Um, and then there's people, because I only started at 1990, you know, I'm not going to get Hulk Hogan on this list, but Hulk Hogan should have been on this list. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, lots of other people that left and came back. Kevin Nash is on this list. Uh, Christian's on this list. Louis Spicoli would be an example of someone who did a whole bunch of jobs, but I don't know if he ever was contracted for WWE two different times. Ultimate Warrior? Uh, Warrior, uh, not on this list because he never came back for a, a – oh, no, he should be on this list. Um, yeah, he is on this list. Yep, yep. Oh, he's he right under Billy Gunn. He's under Bob Backlund, um, Matt Bloom, a.k.a. Tenzai. Uh, I have Ziggler on this list. Ziggler is another example of a guy who never really left WWE. But if you go from Nick Nemeth all the way up to Dolph Ziggler, there are breaks in there where he's going back down to developmental in, in matches that aren't being captured. Gail Kim, Scott Hall, the Dudleys, Road Warriors, you know, just incredible. Um, some of these people were brought back for certain types of shows, like you'd say ECW reunion or a test. Um, and then some of these people are, are, you know, jobbers who became real wrestlers. So like someone like Scott Taylor, you know, he for years and years was kind of hanging out in WWE and then finally gets a big contract. Yeah. Some of them have a lot to do with WCW imploding. So, you know, uh, the dying days of WCW, a lot of talent switched over. So Haku all the way through, um, many of these, I do have Hulk Hogan on this list actually, because I would have had him in the early nineties and then the mid two thousands. So I guess I did get, grab him. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's not a perfect list, but by any means is what I'm trying to get at with this. But I'm trying to say there's about a 20% chance in the group I looked at. I wouldn't be surprised if that number is a little bit lower now because I do think the WCW invasion kind of added a lot of talent and gave people kind of a second chance to come back. Um, that said, I, I do think one in five sounds about right where a lot of the younger talent, you know, I, I probably don't have Ty Dillinger on here, but Ty Dillinger is a guy that, you know, came up as, what is it? Uh, Garrison, uh, Spears. Garrison Gavin, Spears, Gavin, Gavin, Gavin Spears, Spears yeah. yeah, and then left and came back. And he didn't do enough as Gavin Spears for me to capture him in this list because I was looking mainly at main roster stuff. But he was there, you know, and there's guys that are, you know, like if Lance Archer ever comes back, he he would be on here in theory. But most of these people, you know, you, you leave and you're done. But there's a lot of developmental talent. And as soon as I put this list out, someone contacted me and said, hey, I think some names are going to be added to your list pretty soon. You know, people just kind of hinting that, hey, they knew other developmental talent that had been previously cut that are coming back. So, you know, it can happen. So it'll be very interesting. But, um, the, yeah, my answer is about one in five right now. So uh, will we see Emma back in WWE? It could happen. I do think if I look at this list, it is very male-centric. You know, Maria would be one of the few examples of a woman or Gail Kim yeah. that has left and come back and, and really had a, a very big difference there. Yeah, you have Maurice on here, too. 
yeah, Maurice would be probably the other big example. And and with her, you know, she just left to have a child and she might never be back for all we know, um, just on the TV show. So Luna uh, Sean also on here. Yeah, Luna is someone who bounced around a lot. Um, same with the Harris brothers, of course. You know, they're should always should Sable be on here? Um, she should. If if I if I had all her her data captured in the right way, I'm sure she would. She would be again. It has to do a lot with you have to have a year trail off, have a break, and come back. So if that if for instance you were here Maybe a she lot, had a really low match count that, that doesn't make her appear on here. Yes, and if you for instance worked from January to March. Then you left and you came back and you worked November to December of the next year. They would look like they're consecutive years the way I was counting this. I wasn't doing it month over month. So if you worked in consecutive years for the Fed but had a break in between, that wouldn't have been captured in this study. So just an interesting little uh, side note. And if anybody's a a Patreon supporter, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash russellnomics, right? Just slash russellnomics? Yes. Yes. And uh, you can see the document. You can see all the the information behind this. And I have some spreadsheets I've been updating actually in the WrestleNomics drive on the Google Drive. On, under Harrington WrestleNomics, I've been updating all my uh, data set Ooh. so other people can poke around in there. Yeah, Ooh, I, You need to check that out. Yeah, I update lots of stuff on that WrestleNomics drive that no one ever knows about. I just kind of silently upload it there. And you don't even tell me. No, I don't ever mention it. Oh. I just do. <laughs> I'm going to so. have to check it out. Yeah, that's the excitement. All right. Well, that ends our issue of uh, WrestleNomics this week. Today is uh, November 26, 2017. I was your co-host, Christopher Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at MookieGana. You can email me at WrestleNomics at gmail.com. You can support me by coming out to Can Can Wonderland in St. Paul and seeing Jester's Comedy Improv any Friday night at 7 p.m. And uh, you can uh, always give us feedback about the show at WrestleNomics or at MookieGana or at Brandon Thurston. Brandon, what are your plugs? Well, you're, if you dare to continue to listen to this show, you're probably going to hear me talk about uh, my life in wrestling for like almost an hour and a half with, with Mookie here. But uh, yeah, you can follow me at Brandon Thurston. You can follow my wrestling Twitter at Farmer underscore Thurston. You can follow my wrestling school at Graps Anonymous or GrapsAnonymous.com. And uh, I don't know, I'm going to be wrestling uh, on December 9th. No, excuse me, December 10th in Hamilton, Ontario for CPW wrestling the Super Smash Brothers and I'm I think oh I'm doing a, a Christmas show here in Buffalo at Riverworks which is a part wrestling show part every time I die concert and then I'll be back for ESW on January 20th here in the city of North Tonawanda and uh, if you are listening to Brandon talk about his his career in wrestling be sure to log on to SeatGeek and just look at the tickets available so that you can book them for either Wrestlemania Royal Rumble any of the other 14 pay-per-views coming this year and uh, uh, this way, in case Brandon does get called up, you can make sure you have those front row tickets. And uh, those tickets will be $20 cheaper when you use the promo code WE. There you have it. WrestleNomics Radio can only be heard on the Voices of Wrestling Network. We thank the gentlemen over at Voices of Wrestling for promoting and tolerating our show. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mookie Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Um, I've got uh, some lidocaine here with me today. I wrestled last night um, for Empire State Wrestling here locally in the Buffalo Niagara Falls area. And I was in a street fight, and uh, there were tables... 
and there were Singapore canes, and there was there were even thumbtacks involved. Um, Where does one purchase a Singapore cane? I don't know. We just have one at the wrestling school. Sure, it's not like a tiki torch that someone has just like deconstructed. It could be, especially this Singapore cane may have especially been that. I don't know. But it was, it was, it's, it was short, and like you know, the shorter the Singapore cane is, the less it gives. And I wrestled Mikey every night, by the way, um, who's a, a guy who, who's really involved in the uh, the wrestling school that I'm a part of. And uh, so, were you successful? Did you? Uh, I was successful. I, I won. I defeated him. I, I gave him an, I gave him an exploder off the top rope onto thumbtacks, and I pinned him. No, onto on thumbtacks. Yes, onto thumbtacks. You're taking thumbtack bumps. In Tonawanda? Well, he did. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lord. Have you taken a thumbtack pump? No. So I, uh, it's, it's a superplex type thing. Like it was an exploder off the top. So, um, I, uh, I didn't, he got thumbtacks in his back and like, I didn't really land in them as much. So I, I did get scrapes. I have a couple scrapes on me, but nothing bad. And what was his response after the match of taking thumbtacks out of his back? He was all right. He was he was cool with it. He was fine. Um, I assume he he wrestles with a singlet or a shirt or something. So oh no, wasn't no, we were both shirtless fierce? for it. Shirtless. I, I came I came to the ring wearing a shirt, you know, just to uh, try to give that impression. Like I'm not gonna because I'm very I've, I've had like a couple gimmick matches here and there and like in my life, and I've never really had one. I guess I, I guess I never had one that was as. Uh, as hardcore as this one so I, I tried to like keep the shirt on like i'm not gonna do this hardcore shit i'm gonna i'm here to wrestle and and i had him like you know beat me up and take it off and everything and yeah shouldn't it have been like a farmer's market fight instead of a street fight to go with uh, your farmer gimmick i don't have a farmer gimmick i thought you were a farmer brandon thurston you know who Farmer Burns is yeah you're 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 like a, a stretcher farmer is what you mean not a uh, farmer farmer no, but I, I thought maybe if you had like all GMO free suplexes or something. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, maybe or, organics, uh, organic leg locks, and uh, yeah, that's a good. Idea. I I had a notion this morning that I might just derail the entire show and spend an hour and a half interviewing Brandon about the psychology of why he is a professional wrestler. We could, we could do that. Well, I was curious. What what <laughs> when? How many years would you say you've been wrestling now? I've been wrestling since two thousand three. So that's. Um, 14 years. Now, 14 years. Now, I think when you when you measure somebody's experience, I think you should measure their match count. How many matches have you had? And maybe how many matches have you had at a certain level? Like, I've had somewhere, somewhere around 250 matches. So over 14 years, I admit, that's not a lot. Like, that's, um, I don't know what the average would be. But there have been years where I've had more matches than, than others. Like, I, I would say I've never had more than, like, maybe 40 or 50 matches in a year. Well, you know, it's it's comparable to my improv experience in some ways because I started what I call professionally doing improv in 2003 because that's when I started working for a you know, a semi-professional company and getting paid for it and whatnot and doing it in a big theater space. So I, I've been doing it for about as long as you. And occasionally I will set a goal for myself of maybe – like last year my goal was 52 shows in the year and I oh, did wow. 60. So, you know, I, I, I usually average somewhere between – 30 and 50 shows a year, but it, it depends on, you know, how intense I want to go, how many private shows I'm doing, how often I'm going to double up a show. Like coming up in a couple of weeks here, we're going to start doing 7 p.m. shows and then 9 p.m. shows. 
So, you know, it's an hour and a half followed by another hour and a half. So depending on if you count that as two dates or one date, for me, I count that as two shows. So, you know, yeah. that you can get up quickly when you do that. Also helps to own your own company because uh, <laughs> you can book then, yourself. Then you can book yourself. That's right. That's, a, that's an old trick still being used today in wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so who paid for these tables for you? Uh, did did the, the Fed pay for them? Or since you're a co-owner of the Fed, did it essentially come out of your own pocket? I am not a co-owner of any promotion. Oh, but, okay. Uh, I, uh, we, uh, they had a table. ESW had a table, yeah, that we just used. They had a table, and then they, now, now they it's behind a table the, at, Yeah, they obtained a table at, at some point in, in prior history, and then we used it last night. And during this entire battle, was there any point when you thought, this is not a good idea? Because uh, you, you, you mentioned today... You're like I gotta re- I gotta go get get some icy hot as you put it uh, on the WrestleNomics credit card and I'm right. taking the WrestleNomics limo down to the Seven Eleven to pick up some lidocaine. Yeah, thank you for so, that, by the way. Do you normally get this sore after a match, or would you say this is no, worse? I, than- I wouldn't even say I'm even that sore. I think I'm just like my back is kind of sore from. I probably took like some a stupid bump because I had him like he, he gave me a couple headbutts and I took the bump off the second rope and like. And that was probably just a little bit rough and uneven. And then maybe when I gave him the finish, the, the exploder off the top, I might have landed kind of sloppily. So it, it's not that bad. I mean, like you would think this would be a match where like this, I don't know, I guess the most violent match I've ever been a part of. And um, you would think, oh, yeah, you're going to be really fucked up afterwards. And no, no, I mean, not to ruin the illusion, but no, everybody's fine. I'm totally fine. I've been hurt way worse. After, what what matches. what what precipitated the need to have a street fight between you two? Why was there so such animosity and bad blood? Because so like March 2015, I formed a stable called the Patient Saints of Professional Wrestling, um, which which were it was four guys including me, and I'm the leader. And Mikey Evernight was one of them, one of the guys that I brought into the stable. And our our goal was to uh, to eradicate all of the. Uh, all the people who make wrestling a joke, all the, all the comedy people, people like uh, Dalton Castle and Dick Justice I had to deal with. So we were really out to, to cleanse pro wrestling of all these r- ridiculous figures. Have you been successful in removing all comedy wrestlers from upstate New York? Well, well I did beat Dalton Castle, and then I did have a, a long feud with, with Dick Justice, and then he had to leave ESW in a, as, as a result of a loser leaves ESW match. So, so you're, you're, discussing, you're discussing both ROH and TNA talents here that you have, you have vanquished. Impact Wrestling, but yes, exactly. I vanquished them, and I sent them back to their, their more prestigious promotions. Never to be seen again. But actually, Dick Justice did come back, and he did like the um, Midnight Rider thing where he came back in a mask, and I was furious because ESW was not living up to their promises. Would you say that they they betrayed you? Did you seek any legal counsel at the time? I, I did discuss it with Ivan the Impaler, but he told me that there really wasn't uh, really wasn't worth going after. I guess. Hmm. Hmm. Ivan has been known to uh, take a hard stance on these kind of subjects, so he's a, a good person to consult with. Uh, when you when you found yourself in this situation as as the leader of the four, was there voting or what was the uh, procedure to decide that you would be the leader of the four men? Um, I just decided I wanted to do a stable, and uh, I wanted to pick three guys to include in it, and those are the three guys that I picked. And who else was in the stable with you? So this is Mikey Everknight, Terrell Kenneth, who I've talked about before, and Steve Gage. And uh, – 
during the match were they were they ringside were they able to assist you or is no. the stable no longer uh functioning the stable no longer exists and I, I i did a promo saying that i am the one and the only patron saint of professional wrestling now and um they shouldn't like, it be a, a patreon saint of professional wrestling that is a great idea maybe i'll start a patreon just for that maybe i'll just i would have to rename it though i guess if we're gonna really go strong with the branding the, the patreon saints of pro wrestling and and just back on the thumbtacks for a second who brought out the thumbtacks to pour them in the ring was it you or him he did okay. he brought them so, out and he, so brought, he, brought, just he brought them out in like a sack and then um i i kicked him and whatever i bumped him and then i grabbed the sack and i looked in it he hadn't poured it out yet i looked in it and i i looked at the thumbtacks and i said no we're not using this and i handed it to the ref to get rid of but then, of course, he cut me back off and then poured them down. And then we, like, stared at each other over the thumbtacks. And he, like, put the thumbtacks in his mouth and spit them out at me. And Oh, my. And then we, we punched each other in yebu and, and all that. Were they were they uh, pushpins or thumbtacks? Oh, th- thumbtacks, yeah. So, the, like, the very thin metal edge and then, like, just the, the prickly part? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. When I was in um, Germany back in 97, I want to say. I spent a, a couple weeks there on an exchange trip, and I asked one of the Germans there for the longest word they could think of in German, because you know German's famous for you know yeah. combining different words. And the word they gave me, as I recall now, twenty five plus years later, um, was the German word for thumbtack, which was like, and I'm sure one of our German listeners will correct me that it's not in fact at all true, but it was like, uh, basically meant like on the wall together holding object thing. And so, you know, like a flugzeug is a, an airplane, which just means fly thing. So it was a very funny word that they'd come up with for thumbtack. And I'm sure there's a, you know, I'm sure the word thumbtack in German is thumbtack or thumbtack. But um, <laughs> at the time, I remember it being like on der Wall, uh, you know, Zeitung or something like that. So uh, that's newspapers. So that's probably not right. But yeah, it was it was something funny. So that's just my thumbtack story about Germany that I thought I'd throw in. Um, Ribwick. Yeah, that's probably the much more commonly used word um, than, uh, you know, same with like, I remember in, in German class in the 90s, they taught us like computer was called like informatique. And I'm sure now the computer is called a computer. So, you know, words change over time. Uh, getting back to your professional wrestling career here, uh, ESW was this weekend. Have you any other things before the end of the year? Any other feds you're going to be working for? Just ESW again before the end of the year, I assume? ESW doesn't run again until January 20th. Uh, and by the way, we had a good draw, too, like 550, probably. 550? Yeah. We wow. Ran a bit, we, 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 so we usually run at this uh, this one fire hall venue called St. John's Road Fire Hall, and instead we ran this one at a slightly bigger fire hall uh, called Frontier Fire Hall. And, yeah, you can fit a little bit more in there. And uh, was it, was that, pretty, was... it was pretty packed. I believe they were selling standing room. Wow, was that because the uh, the trainees battle royale required ten apiece, or exactly? Or what do you that, think? That always helps when you book like fifteen locals and have them sell tickets. Um, that definitely helps. Was there I, a battle royal? Yes. <laughs> there was yes, exactly. There was a 15, 15 man battle royal that included like I think fourteen locals. So yeah. But, no, honest, you bring up a good helps. point here about the five fifty because there was a time where I would read all about all these different feds in the US and they would talk about how much they're drawing. And I'd be like, You realize upstate New York oftentimes will have two or three different feds drawing several hundred people, sometimes up to over a thousand, uh, for a really big show. Without even, you know, really big names a lot of the time. And no one ever talks about it. You know, what TCW. What would those be? 
Oh, you know, back back in the days, Upstate would used to do okay sometimes, yeah. and and um, some other up, Upstate was booking names. They were booking like Abyss and stuff at the, uh, and they ran like what the German House and the All Star Arena. I don't know if we're, and then they would they would be... run like a little like you know like they would run like a hockey stadium type type deal one time. I, I know like there was a big cage match a couple times where they drew well, but I just meant like it was funny because sometimes Syracuse would have a show, Buffalo would have a show, Rochester would have a show, and all three of them within you know a week or so, and they'd be doing pretty well. And then I hear about other feds around the U.S. that were drawing far less, that were getting a lot more attention. It just made me think, wow, we're really bad at promoting ourselves <laughs> and getting that word out on the Internet for people to know that this is happening. And then a little bit later, 2CW kind of pumped it up. And they even had a couple big shows, too, if I recall. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when they, they were doing their Internet. They ran, they ran, I believe, their biggest shows in, in Watertown, New York. Uh, and they drew, I, I believe, over a thousand once or twice. Yeah, so I just – it was always just amusing to me that, you know, you'd think – you'd go to like early Ring of Honor and then you'd be like, wow, these shows are actually not that much more packed than they are in Upstate. They're a lot better in terms of the quality, but they're not and necessarily – ticket prices are probably higher for Ring of Honor than for uh, – in the I'm talking like 2002, 2003, 2004. Yeah. Well, I know there's like you know, there's that 2003 Spencer Report show in, for Ring of Honor. Well, right? that's your terrible idea. <laughs> I was at Is it. That... Yeah, maybe it did. Were you at that show? No, I wasn't. I was I uh I was not there at that time. I think I sat second row with like a bunch of other wrestlers for that show. But you you were telling me about your your schedule for the end of the year here. Is oh, there yeah. big then I trailed off. So and uh I'm gonna wrestle for Courage Pro Wrestling in Hamilton, Ontario on this I think it's December tenth. I'm gonna team with Terrell Kenneth who I mentioned against the Super Smash Brothers. Oh. And uh who's in the Super Smash Brothers these days? Mario, Luigi, who else? Uh, Stuart Dose, I think, and uh, Evil Uno. Ah, so uh, the, the ex-Chikara guys? Yeah. Or possibly current Kachara guys? I don't even know if they're still there or not. I think former, because I think they just wrestle in Canada now, but yeah. Interesting. And uh, have you developed a strategy yet for that match? Uh, we we are, but I, I can't talk about that publicly, of no. course. Is it going to be pro-action replay codes, game genie codes, just normal Konami code? Yeah, I might have to consult the Game Genie uh, cheat code. Interesting. Dig, dig, dig that out of the uh, storage closet or something. But yeah. Tell them that you're sponsored by Galoob. See what they uh, how they react. That's a good idea. And let's let's go back to your role as a trainer. When did you become a trainer at the school? I mean, that's it's kind of a gradation. I don't know. Like, so the school that I, I train at now is, is called Grapplers Anonymous, and they opened their doors in July 2014. But like, I wasn't a part of it when they started. Um, and I showed up around November to just like hang out and train and, uh, I started coming more regularly and I guess just by default, I was the most experienced one there. So, you know, there were of course like new kids coming in and who had very little experience or no experience and they wanted to learn stuff and they were being taught stuff. So I was like, well, I, you know, no, you do it like this, you do it like that. And it just uh, gradually, it turned into me being a trainer and, uh, but I, but I really love it, and I, you know, there's, I think the the best thing I have to add to pro wrestling, like on the inside of pro wrestling, is being a trainer and helping people learn stuff that they can use to go on to become successful wrestlers. Like I, I say, like when you when I see somebody, especially the people that we've trained from scratch, who like showed up on day zero and we taught them their first bumps, and now they're out there having good matches, not just competent matches, but matches that are actually really good and, and do get over. And then, you know, people are doing stuff that I feel is creative and impressive. 
And I think like that's one of the best things in the world to see is to see, you know, these guys learn and to feel like to feel like you can give yourself a little bit of credit for helping them learn what they've learned and, and do what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. I, I find that when you're used to performing, when you switch to teaching, it's a very different muscle and it's very rewarding in a different way. And I think it's, very... it's made me a better wrestler in a lot of ways too, especially like fundamentals. And that's, that's the, the bulk, I guess, of what I teach is I teach people, I teach people basically everything from, from bumps to fundamentals to practice matches and match psychology and stuff like that. And, uh, I think showing people how to do moves helps me understand what all the little mechanics are. And I feel like that that's helped my fundamentals get a lot better. What, what do you consider to be your trainer? You talk to a lot of indie wrestlers and they'll kind of just say, well, I absorbed it, you know, kind of by watching wrestling and then getting in the ring. And then people kind of showed me how to do this and showed me how to do that. And some people have like someone they'll say, I went to this training school. I learned from them or I went to this thing. And once this trainer was there, he straightened me out and taught me the right way, you know, fix your feet and do this and do that. What, what would you say is your trainer or trainers? Yeah, there's a lot of goofball training out there, as we say. But I, my original trainers, I would say, when I first showed up to train, there was a guy named Hector who was who was properly trained. Before that, everybody that I that I wrestled with before I started training was trained by somebody who was like showing them right sided headlocks and right sided arm ringers. And, and if you know anything about wrestling training, you do all that stuff on the left side. But yeah, I was trained by a guy named Hector at first, and then he brought in his trainers, who were the all nighters, who are uh, Sexy Monkey, Robin Nightwing, Joey Knight, Kevin Grayson. They even brought brought uh, Beth Phoenix with them a handful of times too. This is before she was in WWE, um, and then like what I what I would call the first generation or incarnation of ESW went down, and we uh, we had no more training place, and I ended up going to Rochester to train with with Jimmy Olsen. He was the head trainer at the time. I went there for like two days a week for about a year or so. So I would say all nighters and Jimmy Olsen are basically my trainers original trainers and i know jimmy um yeah i knew jimmy from back in the day yeah, he was there uh, last night oh was he yeah. he's yeah, not he, working anymore is he no he he comes and he like you know he gives people advice and he watches stuff and he hangs out nice nice well that's exciting i i i um think that you're right in the sense that <laughs> there's a lot of people who will train you different ways and new york was a funny state because while you and i both kind of started learning pro wrestling is when it was transferring from being a heavily commissioned state to a very lightly commissioned state. And by that, I mean there used to be a requirement that wrestlers had wrestling licenses. And to get a wrestling license, you had to essentially get a licensed wrestler. The way at least it was always explained to me was you had to get a licensed wrestler to basically sign off on your license application. And so it was always this thing of like who are the few guys who have these quote-unquote wrestling licenses and therefore can train regardless of whether or not they were any good at training or could wrestle. They were like the only guys that could supposedly bestow this next ability onto the people. And whether or not this was true or not was always kind of weird because I would go and I'd read the regulations and I would see – I never heard it like that. um, And that was the way it was explained to me at the time. That's why I say it was like very odd where you'd read exactly what it said and it didn't quite sound like it was that. But it also sounded like the the commission could stop you from wrestling if you weren't licensed. Yeah, and I know they required drug tests, at least in the regulation. And I know around 2003 that was done away with. And like I, I, I mean, I and boots, I think, now. was like another one. Really? 
something like that. That's always again things that people would like to throw out there, saying they had to have. Well, but well, I don't know how the the early ESW shows happened then. And like, and that's the thing too. Like, by the way, is that like in in the early two thousands, which is I, I would say that's when the you know the modern era of indie wrestling started, is in the early two thousands, around the time like Ring of Honor started, and. I think the commission just wasn't really aware that indie wrestling was like a thing and that it was happening. So I think there were a ton of shows in New York that the commission just didn't care about. And I, I don't know if I would say they didn't care about because I was at a lot of shows that got shut down or oh, got really? canceled like okay. a couple days ahead of time or the rumor mongering and people would call the commission on each other and try to get their, their school shut down and the school would then claim this is a trainee performance only show or we would have, you know, uh, I think by a state after dark, which would be like the, you know, we would do a show, but it would be a, a, a secret show you could only tell your friends and family about. Uh, there was a lot of secret secretness going on because a lot of people didn't want to get bonded, which was yeah. the big cost. And then have, of course, having a, a doctor and then supposedly you had to also tell the commission about it. And then you had to give them a commission kickback or as they call it today, a ticket fee or whatever the uh, term they used was. They want a certain percentage of the, the ticket sales. But I, I, I don't know that they even really enforce that on indie promotions. I'm sure they do on WWE because that's bigger money. But I, I think by like 2004, at least in my area – that's when everybody was like, oh, yeah, we got to be licensed because that's when I think more promotions, at least in this area again, that's when more promotions started to or at least I should say two promotions started to exist. And so that they would be, they became rivals and would, were probably calling the commission on each other. But I know like up until then, though, I don't know that especially when you think about like how the Internet was, the Internet in 2003 is very different from what the Internet is today. And oh, yeah, I mean, as easy no- to just go on Facebook and look up. You know. Well, there was no Facebook, and exactly. so there was all these weird, like, message forums, and you'd have to go there, and people would post and try to promote shows that way. And, and if this indie promotion had a website, like, you know, they're overachieving. Yeah, I mean, well, it would be a tripod website or uh, something like that a lot of the time. Fire, I think we had. Yeah. Tell me uh, a little bit about, then, your, your transition here as you're going from wrestling. What do you start off as your gimmick? Uh, are, you, are you Brandon Howard Thurston, podcast host and wrestling extraordinaire? Yeah, I, I actually bring out a laptop and I start doing Excel right in the ring, and people get very uh, bored, and then I pin them. Um, <laughs> I, my first matches ever were under the, the mask of El Lucho Grande, which is like an Olympico mask, and I did some jobs under that mask. And then I was a referee. I was a referee before that, actually. I uh, I was a referee, and then I did the El Lucho Grande thing, and then. And then I just did in 2004, May, May 15, 2004 is the first time I wrestled as Brandon Thurston. And and did you do high school wrestling? No, I, I did no high school wrestling. And then I did college wrestling because I was, I was kind of doing an amateur wrestling gimmick, even though I had never done any amateur wrestling. And then 2007 came, came around and NWA Empire was terrible and the morale was very low. And then Chris Benoit killed his family and himself. And I was like, man... Wrestling is pretty ridiculous. And then End of Empire called their, their September show, like, Juiced 2, which I felt was a steroid reference. So I was like, morale's low. This promotion isn't good. They're naming their, their shows after steroids. I think I'm done after this, for a while at least. So that was, like, September, and that's when the school year starts. And I was going to Niagara County Community College. So I was, like, walking around the school. like, And I would work out at the, at the weight room all the time. And it was right by the wrestling room, and I guess. And... I was like, why don't I just sign up for the wrestling team and, and fuck this pro wrestling shit? And and I did feel like kind of I need to do some method acting if I'm going to do this style or this gimmick. So so I 
signed up for the wrestling team and I didn't really know what I was getting into. And we ran around the campus three days a week for, I think all of September and, uh, just to build up the cardio. And then we got in the wrestling room in October and uh, I didn't even realize how many days a week wrestling practice had happened. I figured it was like three days a week, like we were doing and like, Nope, five days a week, Monday through Friday. So, so every day, every, every weekday at like three thirty, wrestling practice would start, the door would close. You brought no water in with you and you stayed in that room for two hours and just got, you know, wrestled and thrown around for two hours. And it was a great experience and exploded my cardio. And it gives me a lot of like underlying mat wrestling stuff or even not even mat wrestling, but like even stand up stuff that I think is really valuable. Did you do you find that it's a different um, mentality or or thinking set from when you're working with someone? Because obviously, in one you're giving someone th- your weight so that they can throw you yeah. easier, and the other you're trying to resist it with all your power. Yeah, and to be honest, I wasn't like a very good wrestler, especially amongst a bunch of college wrestlers who were probably college wrestlers because they were very good in high school. Um, but I think like I remember like one of the first things I did like somebody went for a double on me double leg on me and like one of my first wrestling practices and I like literally took a back bump because I guess that was just my instinct when somebody does that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very different. It's a very different mentality. And I think it's, I think like CM Punk has talked about this and I think he said that he's talked to the Lesnar about this, like the instincts there's, I think there's such a cooperative instinct that you develop as a pro wrestler that it's hard to f- figure out how to make yourself act as if you need to destroy somebody if that makes sense <laughs> no it, it makes sense i think that's it's very true that it's very tough to kind of turn it from one way to another way it's, it's very different I, I, yeah i feel like the instinct is always to be giving and always to for there to be this back and forth rather than to dominate your opponent yeah yeah no that makes sense and then did you actually compete in tournaments in college a few and i was pinned quickly i believe i think for most of them yeah would your family come out to watch you in these tournaments no, I don't think I don't think they did. They were like because a lot of them were travel. Like we would go to Brockport, or we would go to. Most of them were were out of the area. But, but you, I, did, you, I was at a. Uh, here's a story. I was at it. So that year, the year that I wrestled, there is a, a New York State tournament every year, which is just includes all the all these colleges from New York State, and that was at UB at the University of Buffalo that year. But uh, I was there, and uh, and and I think in the 157 pound class. Uh, the guy who placed fifth turned out to become someday Dalton Castle. Mm. Dalton's kind of renowned for his amateur wrestling, yeah, you know, Greco a, style. Excellent athlete. And you see that just with like the strength stuff that he does. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's a very impressive. It's him and Elgin and people like that really, you know, shine in that kind of capacity for sure. Um, when you, so you didn't know high school sports then? None. No. Were you watching professional wrestling at the time, though? Oh, yeah. I was, especially by the time the Attitude Era came around, and I became even more of a fan of wrestling. And then I denounced Vince McMahon and the WF, and I discovered Japanese wrestling. This is so like did, did you have a backyard fed with your friends or anything? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, I smashed one of my front teeth because uh, I told somebody to drop kick like a, a construction horse like one of those things that folds out and i definitely mm-hmm. yeah, drop kick it right into my face it'll be great and uh yep. he did he did and and now i have a uh, some bonding on my front tooth yep yep uh one of my very first backyard matches uh we tried to reenact an rvd spot with a chair like throw the chair catch the chair get kicked in the face 
Yeah. And it immediately like ripped open my lip and like <laughs> caused like a big hole there and just blood gushing out. And it was fine in the end. But it was one of those where it's just like did not even think that's what was going to happen when someone kicked a chair at my face. I, I thought for whatever reason, you know, I could block it or just kind of take a bump without it hitting me. Yeah. Didn't really think about what really happens when a when a chair goes at you like that. Um, so you you got your thumbtacks out then early in life on on your backyard days is what you're telling me. Yeah, mostly barbed wire though. I was I was big. Was it really barbed wire? Yeah, I was big into taking like barbed wire. I was big into taking like if you're doing backyard wrestling, you have like random pieces of wood, like plywood, and we would like take a piece of plywood and wrap it in barbed wire, and I would have somebody like reverse my whip and give me a DDT into it into the corner or something. But, but who? Where would you find barbed wire? Somebody obtained barbed wire. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> That's the baffling part to me. It's just where some of this stuff shows up in an average suburban life. Uh, barbed wire does not appear that often in upstate New York yeah, uh, in day to day. I went to the hardware store and just bought some barbed wire. Interesting. I don't think they're IDing people for that. And and when you were watching all of this and you're modeling your character at the time, was there a particular wrestler that was your idol that you used to be like? I want to be like blank. I like their moveset. I like the way they work in the ring. I don't know. Maybe at that time, fully, because everybody had read Foley's book. But uh, not like later on. I think I think my favorite wrestler of all time is is Kawada, is Toshiaki Kawada, because I I always say like, this, this is good. I'm, I'm I'm telling you stories that I've told students many times. So hopefully this makes sense. But like, I think Kawada has the the widest range of anyone in wrestling history, and you don't get that from just watching one or two Kawada matches. You have to watch maybe dozens of quad matches to get that. But I think his range is, is the widest because his, his range starts at the lowest point and he'll, he'll take it up to the highest point. Whereas I think like the average wrestler maybe has a range of zero to a hundred quad is so stoic and he seems maybe even boring to people who watch him for the first time because he builds up such a, a presentation of I'm very serious and I'm not expressive so that when he does become expressive, whoa, it's a big deal. Are you sure this is not just you, you know, projecting feelings of abandonment by a, a father figure in your life that, you know, their withholding of love makes you want it more? <laughs> that, 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 um, that might be well true, but like, well, well how does that relate to Kawada? Because you said that the fact that he's so stoic and he refuses to show emotion until yeah. the very end, that that, that um, makes you want and enjoy him more is the connection I was making. But uh, so so with that in mind, Kawada, not necessarily, I think he was a wrestler at one time, like a amateur wrestler, perhaps. Oh, yeah, he definitely but was. But I would also think of him as much as a kicker, uh, you know, yeah. really well for that. So did you ever do the kickboxing lessons or the karate lessons or the taekwondo lessons or the no, G? I, no, I have put on kick pads, though, and started to throw more kicks, though. And uh, have you have you had your kick uh, proficiency uh, graded by anyone who's actually very good at kicking to say, yes, you're doing that right. Or you're not doing that right. Not really. I don't know. Nobody's ever given me an opinion one way or the other. I don't know. I, I throw a lot of leg kicks and I, I, I started to throw an enziguri finally, like to get myself uh, in, in with modern indie wrestling. <laughs> so an enziguri, the, the 1992's hottest move of the year, you're yeah. ready to bring it in yeah. the repertoire. Yeah. The back, uh, the back brain kick, if you will. Exactly. Um, so Kawada was your guy, uh, and so you, what was the match that you saw with Kawada that kind of made you fall in love with him? I think it's Kawada's story too that makes 
that makes the expressions in their context mean even more. Like, Kawada's story is he's Masawa's partner. He's always the number two, and Masawa is always the chosen one. He's always the clear top guy in the promotion. And he's in Masao and Kwada are partners for a while. And Masao and Kwada go back to high school. They're high school friends. Like, have you seen the pictures online of them in, in like on a tour bus or like a probably like on a, on the way yeah. to a wrestling tournament? Yeah. And uh, so they've known each other forever. And they're tag partners and their tag team ends. And of course, Kwada goes with Tawe. Masao goes with Kobashi. And all this time, like Kwada, not in a singles match, not in a tag match, has never pinned Masao. And, of course, they have that 94 match, June 3, 94, in the Budokan. And, uh, and Masao still beats him. And then they have uh, the tag match in 95, the 6-9-95 tag match with Masao Kobashi against Kawada and Telwe. And that's where Kawada finally pins him in a tag match after, like, 43 minutes. And that's, I think, one of the greatest matches of all time. It's one of the two or three greatest of all time. And uh, so it took him, like, five years to even pin Masao. And then he doesn't even beat him in a title match until the Tokyo Dome in 98, which is kind of an underwhelming match. And I think that the other thing, too, about Kawada is, like, even him holding the Triple Crown, which was the main title in all Japan, like, he won the Triple Crown in 94 from Steve Williams, and then his very next defense was against Kobashi in a one-hour draw, and then he drops it to Hanson after that. So he never really has a real run with the title there. And then uh, in... 98 when he beats Masawa finally for the title the very next show or the very next big show he defends it against Kobashi and loses it and so again he never really has a run with it he's just a, basically a transitional champion to get the title off of Masawa to go to Kobashi and then in 99 he, he finally beats well he beats Masawa again and this is the match with the Ganzo bomb and the broken arm and he breaks his arm so he has to vacate the title immediately so Kawada never I mean it was, while Masawa was there anyway before the Noah split, Kawada never really has this moment to be the guy. He never really has a long run as Triple Crown champion. You know, he never really gets his his time to be. And so, this is your idol. This is your exactly. And I <laughs> this wonder what you're maybe, ready to set maybe, your life up to be like. Exactly. And maybe there's just this dark side to me that's like, you know, yeah, that's what life is like. You try really hard, and you get like little tastes of the good stuff, but you don't really get the big long title ring. Like, yeah. That's what life is really like. Were you studying the works of the famous Nihilus while you were watching all of these Kawada matches in, in college? I don't know. Who would be the famous Nihilist? Oh, jeez. I was afraid you were going to ask that. Is Nietzsche a Nihilist? Yes, Nietzsche. Uh, let's see. Who else do they count as famous Nihilists? <sighs> would like, Spinoza be a Nihilist? Because I think Nietzsche was – I think Spinoza was like a proto-Nietzsche. Mm. Mm. I'm not sure. <laughs> you're the you're the uh, <clears throat> you're the psychologist uh, or such. I was never that. I, I do see here that I was right that Quad was a amateur wrestler. He was a national champion yeah. his senior year. He, he, he said he beat Liger. Yeah, he said he beat Liger for the championship. Which yeah, he, uh, he wrestled one Kichi Yamada in, in some high school tournament or something. I think like as a championship match. I mean, like I was not in pro wrestling, but like an amateur final or something like that. So with all this Kawada enjoyment here um was there ever a match you watched and you thought i would like to do a match that's as good as blank and I'll, I'll give you my example of this like there was a i think it's barry horowitz versus the blue angel which is blue blazer so it's owen hart in a mask and they do a pretty today it would be considered a simple match 
but it, at the time it was a flashy match from the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember watching that and thinking, I would love if I could do all the moves in this match. Because there's, you know, the kick on the ropes and do the flip uh, you, in the arm ringer type parts and some other kind of nice, nice proto flying stuff that, that Owen was doing. And of course, Owen was really good. I never hoped. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 